Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Hello and welcome to The Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moserkatz, joined by my co-host, Justin Ritchie. Today on episode number 48 of The Extra Environmentalist, we are joined by Paul Sinclair, professor of African archaeology at the University of Uppsala in Sweden. We're going to be talking with Paul today about ancient cities, what archaeology has to contribute to the discussion of sustainability. Also, we're going to talk about what it was like to be in Mozambique during a food crisis and some lessons that that could demonstrate to the world in the midst of the food crisis that's brewing currently. Also, Paul and his colleagues put together a project called the Urban Mind Project. And if you look for the Urban Mind book, you can find the entire PDF of all their research online and for free. And that's a really amazing thing for scholars to do. There's so many issues today with academic publishing and so much amazing scholarly work just goes into journals and is hidden away from the public. And Paul and his team has made this information freely available to everybody, which is really great to read through. So after we're done talking with Paul Sinclair in Sweden, we're going to jump over to Australia where we're going to be talking with Donnie McLarkin of the Post-Growth Institute, who has instituted some very interesting free money days. So with Paul, we're going to be talking about the past and how lessons from the past can help us adapt to peak oil and scarcity that we're experiencing on our planet today. But then afterwards, as you just mentioned, Seth, we're going to be jumping to Australia to talk to Donnie about post-growth futures and how he's helping to build a post-growth future through things like the Post-Growth Institute's annual free money day, as well as asset mapping. It's going to be an intense ride. I hope you're ready. So strap in, put on those headphones, and we'll catch you on the other side. Sinclair, you're a professor of African archaeology at the University of Uppsala, and you've been working on spatial analyses of material cultural distributions in regional and landscape perspectives. And also recently, you've been working on the Urban Mind Project, which is one of the main things we're here to talk about today. So thanks for joining us from the Swedish countryside. Thank you very much. 
in starting out, I was wondering about the Urban Mind Project and in looking through all of the excellent research that you and the team behind it have put together, you're writing about the ways that humans have interacted with landscapes and the ways that humans have built urban environments around these environmental factors and worked with and against these environmental factors and going all the way back to the beginning of urbanism. Where did the modern idea of the city really originate? I have two answers to that one. I mean, the, the classic answer would be the city, Rome, Civitas, uh, you know, the centers of in Gaul, which became administrative and other centers, and the idea of the city developing. That's what the Oxford English Dictionary would give you. Uh, the other one, which I find a bit more broad, and something that I like, is a much broader view of settlement aggregation. I'm really, I'm a bit tired of taking Eurocentric views of cities or towns and projecting them onto different parts of the world. I spent my life working in Africa, and we need a much broader approach to understand the complexity of aggregation. Not all of the towns, or very few of them, in fact, look like medieval centers in Europe and in different parts of Africa. We have clusters, we have groupings, we have groups of villages articulating together, providing urban functions in uh, places like down the Swahili coast and in the southern African interior. So I want a much broader view. And in fact, as I'm talking to Vancouver, I would like the northwest coast uh, societies, the complexity of some of the hunter-gatherers and fishers and the aggregation of settlements uh, much earlier on to be taken into consideration. I don't just think that we should have such a highly developed linear view of when did towns develop. I think we have to be a bit more uh, broader, a bit more creative in effect. That's the way I feel about it. But perhaps I'm in a tiny minority, but I find it attractive to interrogate archaeological data sets which have been orthodoxly interpreted. I, I think it's maybe it's a function of being an old professor, but at this stage of my career I like to challenge my assumptions. So if we were to walk into, say, like, like an old city, what would one of these places look like? They would be coming into very tight-packed houses and narrow alleys, and I suspect a lot of action with people and children and different activities going on. And to my way of thinking, anyway, I mean, growing up in Africa, I, I find it very cramped and intense, an intense experience. I've been trying to get my Babylonian colleagues and to, to talk to me about the hanging gardens and the green areas of their cities. It's difficult, you know, they, they're very focused on the built environment. And when I have been pestering them, I had a wonderful experience with Professor Olaf Pedersen, who was basically saying that, you know, asking me about these green areas all the time, you're putting questions to me that I haven't really taken up. And now, when coming to think of it, I've been reading cuneiform texts and scripts for 30 years, and I realized that a big proportion of these actually reflect urban gardening and the produce of agriculture. He was really sort of rethinking his approach to his scholarly activities, and I really like that. I think that's the sort of attitude I, I want. So to answer your question again, not too many gateways, rather enclosed, walled, and you wouldn't have roundhouses, you'd have flat flat-walled houses, and the communication and interaction thresholds would have been uh, significant limits in your experience. 
Wow. And so you were mentioning urban agriculture, and there's a tremendous trend, and a lot of people are talking about urban agriculture and ways of doing urban agriculture. And it's a really big issue here in Vancouver, where more and more people are trying to find ways to find the land to set up urban gardening. So it's fascinating to think that even in, say, ancient Babylon, they were working on issues of urban agriculture as well. What did those gardens look like? How did people use them? Well, that's where we're coming up to the front end of the research. And I have a new PhD candidate who's just starting off. And she has a tiny town site, a little one. It's just a couple of hectares in size, uh, four or five acres. And she has uh, 3,000 tablets there with uh, referring to the agriculture and the production. And uh, we're investigating this as a, as a focus. And it's really very interesting indeed. And quite frankly, in the Urban Mind book, Olaf Pedersen and so on, compiled a lot of information about how the gardens and how the agricultural plots and the sort of standard pattern of them looked. But this new material is from this town just outside Baghdad. It's going to give us uh, the detail that we're looking for, a combination of text, archaeology. It's very well excavated, well recorded, and we're looking forward to new results. So quite frankly, perhaps it's just my ignorance, I, I freely admit it. This, to us anyway, is a topic which is, uh, it's hot and it's new and it's damn interesting. Urban gardens are, like you say, it's a, it's a hot new topic. And it's obviously not something that humans are just coming into. This is something that humans have been playing around with in cities for a long time. Why would a town want to build an urban garden? I was thinking about this question in regard to London, and I asked Mike Batty, who's in charge of the spatial planning unit in London, if he agreed that London seemed greener to me than it did before. And he said yes. He said he'd thought so too, and he'd gone back through all the satellite images to look for an analogue situation to the present. And he said he couldn't find it, but being a pretty good scientist, he went back through the era of photos as well. When he got back to the Second World War period, he said to me that, well, there I found the analogue situation. So the greenery and the urban gardening and so on in often, I think, reflects crisis, reflects insurance, and it reflects in, in investments in survival, basically. And I think there is this component of it. And when we're thinking of it, in, for instance, I'm talking to Stefan Bartel, one of our co-workers. I mean, he was saying to me that uh, Stockholm is two weeks away from starvation. And Stockholm today in, in the modern age, so we are so dependent on externally transported uh, foodstuffs and so on that there just isn't uh, sufficient uh, local production to take up a crisis. And one of the situations that we know most about, in fact, is in Constantinople and Istanbul. This has been a major focus of us for our Urban Mind project. And uh, we had a, a meeting there, and we had the ecologists and the archaeologists and the linguists and the architectural uh, historians all together and talking to each other in ways that they'd never talked to each other before. And quite a lot of the time that we were focusing on was the production of green areas, which are threatened and under a lot of pressure you know, from the urban development, from the space-time compression of this enormous megacity. And what we found, though, was that the green areas are not just good sources of food and fresh vegetables and so on, but they're also incredibly important reservoirs of ecosystem services. Butterflies, pollinators, and so on, are using these green areas as, if you want, reservoirs or oases in an increasingly 
concrete landscape. And it's important. Uh, it's important to understand this. And just when we thought we'd had it all sorted out from a sort of semi-functionalist food perspective, the linguists came in and challenged us and said, well, do you know, these are the areas that the Roma use. They've been doing this for more than a thousand years, they reckon. And the Roma communities, the gypsies, essentially able to use these spaces, you know, and they do use the spaces for, for living in a sort of transient uh, settlement pattern. And they're also under pressure, severe pressure from the city authorities who want to basically have upper middle class concrete uh, palaces to live in. And all of this we were looking at and we we're thinking how important these green areas are, the crises of the past, and we can document them quite well going back in you know, almost 4th century AD onwards, and not consistent documentation, but we do have interesting insights. And the point about all this, it's a combination of different factors and the explosive growth of places like Istanbul, challenging the water table, the water drainage areas, the water sources. The ecologists are basically trying desperately to protect the wild, you know, these wild areas from being swamped by high-rise you know, skyscrapers. But in reality, these so-called wild areas are co-evolved heathlands. Plant and animal and human communities have been interacting for thousands of years. So in a sense, the, the so-called wild in that region is also, you could also make it as quite a strong case for making it into an urban garden. So this whole business of you know, gardening within the city or gardening in the peri-urban areas of the surroundings and so on, it's, uh, it's complex and very interesting to, to deal with. And what we found is that this multidisciplinary approach it made us all sort of think again. And that, I think, is the quintessential challenge that is facing us all today that we need to think again. How do these urban garden projects really arise? Do we have any evidence that shows whether they were built into the fabric of the city from the beginning they were planned to be put in or a crisis came along and then everyone said, wow, we really need to build these urban gardens? One of the issues that we had in the Urban Mind Project was that this concept of city and the city and so on is we wanted to challenge that a bit, as I said earlier on. So we have different approaches to urbanism, different models of urbanism. I've just been surveying all the cities in Africa and different regions of Africa. And there you see different forms of aggregation. In the Urban Mind volume, uh, Christian Isendal did an excellent chapter. He's done his thesis on the Maya in Central America. And there you have a, a sort of aggregation of households with their garden plots, which are basically aggregating to you know, a larger scale settlement and with a lot of what would be a recognizable urban functions, architecture and different attributes of what towns are. And in other areas, it seems to be like some of the Roman military camps and the rest of it, it seems to be much more rigid and more planned in a sense with grids and, and the rest of it. And there, I think, most of the time, the, you had a, a town and urban and rural divide with a lot of activities going on outside. But uh, it didn't mean to say also that there weren't gardens inside. So I must be careful here and express my genuine ignorance of the details of urban antique planning in Greece and Rome. And certainly the colleagues who've been writing the chapters in the Urban Mind volume would be much more suitable to answer that sort of question about how it's incorporated or not. 
And often it seemed in the Grecian uh, situations quite small scale with the surroundings and the in and out of movement, you know, from the city seemed to be quite normal. I, I don't know, but I, for sure the crisis brings it up. I've experienced this myself very directly. And I was in Mozambique during the war with the Rhodesians and the South Africans. And we had quite a strict form of Marxist-Leninist economic control with very little possibility of, shall we say, entrepreneurial activities in the formal sector at least. And with the, the blockades from the South Africans and the Rhodesians and the, the, the problems, in, there was starvation in, in the cities, and so on, in the city of Maputo and so on. And there was a popular movement, which we called the Zonas Verdes, the Green Zones, which produced food, vegetables, and so on, planted vegetables. And this was what saved Maputo and so on. And later on, I've been looking at aspects of permaculture in places like Havana. I had to blink again because the, it looked just like Maputo in 1979. How quick does that turnaround happen? Did you see it in that situation that took one growing season and people were starting to really gain some basic farming techniques, or did it take longer? Uh, there are a lot of good farming techniques. Of, because in Maputo, for instance, a lot of people from the countryside had come in uh, during the war into the town, and as the Portuguese had left, there was a lot of occupation, if you want, by people who had been previously resident outside. So the skills were there, but the problem that we had there was the, the restrictions, you know, from the actual authorities to sort of conduct commercial activities and micro trade and so on. So there was a rationing and quite a strict regime of uh, control. But it seemed to be happening. It was almost like a sort of guerrilla agriculture happening in, in the beginning. And it just took on. And then I think the authorities realized just how good this movement was and uh, encouraged it. And it was... a uh, fantastic pride in people and it was really a very important uh, development uh, in terms of just basically managing it was not easy not easy situation in those times it's excellent that people can kind of band together like that and, mm. take, and take care of themselves and speaking about a thing you were talking about earlier, you're talking about movement of humans. And humans have, for a very long time, been moving from these kind of agricultural farming settings to larger cityscapes. And that's very much a part of what it means to be modern-day human nowadays. What is the draw of packing people together so tightly? And do you think humans really do benefit from such concentrations? Benefit is a, it's, it's a, hard, it's a hard one. I, I'm just not sure about that one. In terms of quality of life, in terms of diversity of foodstuffs and the rest of it, and diversity of activities, I wonder. I'm mindful of some of the meetings I've been at under the Planet Under Pressure meetings and Earth Stewardship meetings where the focus was, was very much on planetary stewardship one in particular was on the Chinese building a new city every 10 days of more than a million inhabitants. And this was sort of going to, to continue, they said, until 2080 uh, in a sort of linear way that this was global change for them and so on. I wonder at the quality of life that is possible to inculcate into a built environment with that sort of rapidity. But frankly, I haven't been to sea, but things like that would make me pretty dubious in terms of the goods, the services, of course, which are there, and I mean, they're obviously attractants, and people are attracted to these cities, and ideologically, there seems to be an enormous draw into the cities. But I, I, I think also the 
I'm just not sure about the demographic side of things. I'd like to know more about this. But one of my senior colleagues in archaeology told me that uh, most cities had uh, higher death rates and birth rates until, you know, late on in the 1800s. And I just don't know if that is true. But in that case, then, you can see cities as, in a sense, uh, population sumps rather than mountains of achievement. Perhaps some of the modern medical technological developments have kind of reversed that trend in a way, but historically, Correct. perhaps maybe that was the case. I don't know. That's definitely something that I'd be interested in looking into more. And yeah, what- and there's a lot of technology that, that comes out of these big cityscapes as well. That has improved human living in, in a lot of different ways, too. That hit me very hard when I went down, you know, as an African archaeologist, I was taken to Istanbul and Constantinople, looking at the walls and looking at incredible architectural achievements in that city. And it's, it's wonderful. And then just the aqueduct system is up to 700 kilometers, you know, way of drawing in resources into this city. And I was just amazed at that. And then the Byzantinologists, we are people called Byzantinologists. I, mean, I was finding this out as well. I mean, they were just telling me, of course, you know, the, the food came from North Africa, from the Nile Delta, a lot of it. And you just realize how, if you want, global metropolises like Constantinople actually are or were in that uh, early period. And, and it's really fascinating to see just how you can't just have a sort of local perspective in these places. They are enormous and they're very significant. You were in Zimbabwe and the food was having to come from North Africa. I was in Mozambique. Oh, in Mozambique. Um, we got Atlantic herring from the Russians, actually, mackerel. So that was, I don't know where it came from. I thought it was Atlantic, might have been Pacific. But uh, yeah, we had, um, we had food coming in from different areas. But uh, in fact, it was never enough. And the restrictions on, if you want, trade were such that we're lucky to have the, the green zones, you know, providing vegetables, definitely. And it's interesting that this situation after the Russians uh, stopped supporting the Cubans with you know, subsidies for oil and so on, that this was a very similar movement that happened in Havana with the permaculture, with these the Australian people that came in and helped and you know, argued and stimulated and so on. I'd like to know more of the details of that. I was wondering about the urban mind, and there's many different ways I would think that you can define it, but... I'm wondering about the ways in which living in cities has changed the way our species thinks over time and and what really is the urban mind as you and your colleagues have seen it. In the the rather sophisticated uh, field of urban sociology and metabolism and archaeology and history and you know you have whole urban gardening fields in Byzantinology and so on you've got to be very careful there is a sort of discourse on definitions define this and define that. And it's a never-ending discussion if you get into it. So we've been very careful about the definition and, of course, it, it results in an intellectual sloppiness and a fuzziness. There's something in it, to my way of thinking anyway, that this fuzziness is a more sensitive reflectant of the interactions which constitute the urban experience. So somewhere, I was just looking for it in, in the book, I had a position which I took of the urban mind as the sum total of all the thoughts of participants in the urban experience. So that incorporates a strong democratic bottom-up perspective and also incorporates the possibility of the governance approaches and the top-down. But it's a sum total which we have as an interdisciplinary group and 
also with the external drivers, climate and so on, make us mindful of the complexity. And we're very, very sensitive to fixed positions which bite off you know, a small component and you, you argue it through and you, you take an academic position which ends up being limited. And at the same time, in the old hippie generation that we come from and the rest of it, it's holism and all the rest of it, that's the way of doing it. We're looking for pragmatic ways, uh, sort of balancing between, if you want, the academic specificity and the, the woolly-minded holism uh, and how to get at that. And for my way of thinking, uh, Gregory Bateson is a wonderful anthropologist and ecologist and his volumes on mind and nature, together with Bertrand Russell on complexity theory and Alfred North Whitehead from the beginning of the 1900s. Really, it's this sort of complexity and they get at ways of thinking of human experience, which I find attractive. Same way as I find people like uh, Christopher Alexander's uh, architecture attractive. I, I sort of react against concrete neo-brutalist initiatives of urban assertion. But there again, you know, that's uh, this it's a preference, an individual preference. But I think there's something at the bottom of it all, which I think it's better for us all to be greener and to have more possibility of the diversity of ecosystem services and food security and so on, facing the challenges that we are today. Building on that, I'm wondering if there's any evidence about how living in cities has changed the way that our species has actually thought. Well, yes, I, I think cities do change the way that, that the participant in the urban experience, they think, and not only in the urban spatial unit. One of the very first experiences that I had in thinking of this Urban Mind project in the beginning was a friend of mine, Lassa Berg, who did a wonderful film of uh, an area of northern Namibia on the Angolan border, like pretty far out, a place called Sesfontaine. And a lady was there with a stick, and you look around, and there was absolutely no built environment at all. There was nothing, just flat, and you could see pretty far. And this lady was drawing in the sand. Now, here will be my master bedroom, and here is the lounge, and here is the playroom, and she had a whole concept of her house and the built environment in her mind, and she was basically planning it out on the ground, and whether or not that was, was realized or not, it was an extremely powerful, for me anyway, a very powerful image of the urban mind, the communicability of the urban mind into very different environments. And I think that we have to be much broader you know, we used to talk about the one-third society, you know, for the focus of politics and everything on the one-third of people who are engaged and to hell with the other two-thirds. Now it seems to be the 1% society and to hell with the 99%. But I don't know. I think we have to be more encompassing and more creative in the way that we think about urban experience. Does urban minds have similarities that come up between cultures? And has communication technology made us more similar in a way we think in, mm. in urban environments or has made us less? Thank you for that one. I think that's a thoughtful question. I'm a product of the Scottish Enlightenment. I come from Scotland. My cultural background is basically likes to deal with the empirical evidence and think about it and criticize it and formulate it. It's not the same all over uh, the world. And one of the lovely examples that we have in our Urban Mind volume is, uh, for instance, in Vientiane, uh, Laos, where the whole concept, if you want, 
of the open mind in, in uh, Southeast Asia and Laos is, is rather different and a heritage of memory and quite a lot of the, the built environment I think of as encapsulated memory. But in the Southeast Asia and in Laos, um, there's a lot of influence of different forms of Buddhist cosmology and instead of just trying to preserve heritage, it's more a matter of just allowing it to, to disappear and to sort of blend into the past. And I, I thought to myself, well, for instance, so if you ask for urban renewal or urban conservation works, then the, the contradiction between urban renewal and the conservation can be quite marked because, in fact, quite often, if you have a mindset like that, uh, renewal is absolutely what should be done. And conservation of you know, heritage areas and old temples and so on, well, to hell with those, they can just be taken down and something else built up. And I had this experience of talking to the archaeologists in Vientiane and uh, I came in, they were crying, actually. And two of them were really weeping because the ring road had been put around Vientiane and the, the medieval wall of Vientiane had been bulldozed to one and a half meters below the foundations. And there were a few bricks that were basically left and they had them on the desk. Maybe it was just part of the wall and so on, but in fact, it was a, an enormous intervention. It, it really illustrated to me rather pointedly just the differences. And then in, in Sweden, in Stockholm, for instance, in the late 60s, I mean, there was a whole social engineering project of gutting the centre of, of Stockholm, taking out the old buildings and putting up neo-brutalist, modernist nasties, as far as I'm concerned, but maybe some wonderful examples of modern architecture for other people, and that these things change. And nowadays people regret some of those interventions and, you know, would like to have a greener and more sort of livable environment. So these things actually, they are, there is a sort of temporal aspect, things, ideas change, and there is a cultural aspect of things can be different. And what I'm really concerned with in our urban mind approach is that we try very hard not to have an imposition of a cultural imperative. And your question, to answer it, I hadn't forgotten it, I just took this rather roundabout way of coming to it, is our Western European, American scientific development, which is matched and mirrored and surpassed China and India and elsewhere in the world today. But there is, as the AAAS meeting in Vancouver, you know, there's a, a flattening of the world and there is a homogenization of our perspectives. But if this homogenization is the projection of cultural values from a, a West European or Western North American elite and an imposition of those values onto people's situations, then there is going to be problems. And this is what I've become aware of in thinking about the urban mind and, for instance, in different places about uh, looking at the location of colonial uh, centers or cities in different parts of Africa, just how wrong these can be in relation to long-term sustainability. So if you go in there and you're taking over the Zimbabwe plateau and you send your military column up and you put on your military camps and you impose what Marx would call modern capitalist agriculture, you clear people off the land and you concentrate them, force them to pay taxes and you put them into your factories and your farms. I mean, the centers, which are control centers on the Zimbabwe Plateau, for instance, are put in, in areas which are quintessentially in opposition to the settlement frame which has developed over hundreds of years on the plateau. So instead of, for instance, having these 
cities as big cities and continuing with investments in the cities, more and more and more and less and less sustainable in a sense, and perhaps it's a different form of uh, urban networks, more ruralized urban experience and urbanized rural experience would be a more appropriate approach for dealing with the challenges of peak oil or hyperinflation for that matter. It's impossible, it seems to me, as a scientist, to think of cities abstracted from the biophysical context in which they have evolved. Cities themselves are biophysical or organic entities that eat, breathe, and create vast quantities of waste. What we think of as the city is only a tiny fraction of the total human urban ecosystem. So while I think the counter is a wonderful way of understanding how we're eating up the landscape, it represents only a tiny fraction of the total quantity of landscape on the planet now dedicated to sustaining the city. If we think of this in terms of the demands made on the planet, that's what I uh, have attempted to do with the ecological footprint, we convert all of these flows of energy and material into and out of cities into a calculation of the amount of productive ecosystems required to produce those resources and to assimilate the waste generated by production and consumption in the city itself. So the ecological footprint of a city or a country or even the world is simply a measure of the total area of productive land and waterscape dedicated to sustaining and absolutely necessary to sustain that population at its current level of demand in perpetuity, wherever on earth that landscape may be located. So if we look at cities across the world, from rich to poor, one thing stands out, and that is that the ecological footprint, the demand that people make on the landscape, is vastly larger in high-income countries than it is in high or, or rather low-income countries and cities. Each of you here in this audience, if you're a typical Canadian, is attached by an umbilical cord of commerce to about seven hectares of biologically productive land and waterscape scattered all over the planet needed to produce just for you uh, the resources you consume and to assimilate particularly the carbon waste that you generate in the process of that production and consumption. So what this means is that the city is a tiny fraction of the land dedicated to sustaining the city. And we really have to ask ourselves then whether our definition of the urban system isn't somewhat worked. When we get down to our cities, there are painful choices to be made, okay? And there is no free lunch here. And by building green glass towers, we limit the push to gentrify middle-income areas. Supply, it's, an, it's a city-wide market. Supply in one area eases demands on the other. And if you want to just compare New York with a city that does a far better job in the U.S. in terms of affordability, just think about Chicago, where Mayor Daley unleashed the cranes along, uh, along Michigan, uh, Lake Michigan. The result was not cheap houses along Lake Michigan. But the result was a lot less gentrification in the middle-income areas of, of Chicago, which kept affordability for people throughout. Supply really does work. Cities do really have an ability to fight against our most challenging environmental problems. And one of the stories that I find helpful about this is about a young Harvard College graduate 
who in a beautiful spring day in 1844 went for a walk in the woods outside of Concord, Massachusetts. And he did a little fishing, and the fishing was good because there hadn't been much rain lately. But then he came to cook the fish in a chowder. We do that in Massachusetts, we cook a lot of chowders. Uh, and the wind, as he cooked the, the chowder, the wind flicked the flames to the nearby dry grass. And a fire started, and it, and it spread, and it spread. And by the time it was done, it was a raging inferno that had destroyed more than 300 acres of prime Concord woodland. In his day, this man was castigated as an enemy of the environment. The Concord Freeman called him a flibberty gibbet, which I think was pretty bad for 1844. Um, and indeed, it's hard not to think that they were right. I, I don't know of any Bostonian or Cantabrigian in 1844 who was doing nearly as much damage to the environment as this, this man was. Oddly, of course, today, he is venerated as the secular saint of American environmentalism. He's Henry David Thoreau, whose book, Walden Pond, appears to preach a gospel about a wonderful thing. It is to live surrounded by green spaces. Now, in, while his own life appears to teach a completely different moral, right? His own life reminds us that we are an extremely destructive species. And indeed, the, if you love nature, often the best way to take care of it is to stay away from it. As indeed, Thoreau would have done an awful lot of good for nature if he had in fact uh, stayed at home rather than going out to cook chowders in the middle of the woods outside of Concord. Many countries now, most high-income, wealthy, high-density, urbanized cities now live on vastly more land outside of their boundaries than is contained within them. Uh, for example, Japan needs about seven times as much land and water ecosystem in other countries and in the global commons than is located within Japan. The same for the Netherlands, most countries in Europe, and so on and so on. Uh, we say then that all of these countries are in a state of overshoot. They are in ecological deficit re with respect to their domestic capacity to sustain themselves. And this can only go on so long as trade remains a possibility. The problem is that with globalization, a country's cities can continue to grow and to consume, oblivious of the impacts of that growth and consumption on elsewheres around the world. So fish stocks are collapsing, soils are being eroded, tropical forests are degrading. Wherever we look, we see a decline in the availability of resources needed to sustain the growing urban populations. We are using the landscape in the hinterland vastly more intensively now to support cities because as people move to cities, incomes increase, per capita consumption increases, and therefore the ecological footprints of rich urbanites is vastly larger than those of relatively poor uh, rural people. In the last 30 years, we've used all of the energy uh, of all the previous periods put together. So if we double again, the next doubling will mean we will use more energy in the next 30 years or 35 years than in all previous periods in history. That's the nature of exponential growth. Cities to date have evolved in an era when the world was empty. Today, the world is full. We are 50% in overshoot by which we mean we are using 50% more of the annual productivity of ecosystems and the similar capacity of ecosystems on this earth. The problem is that there isn't that energy available. By the way, none of this is models. These are real data that we have to confront, that we are completely ignoring in the development of our ideas about cities today. What if energy really becomes scarce, as most people who study this think it is going to be, and trade becomes less and less possible. At the very least, the costs of everything are going to be going up. We've been shocked recently by the steep rise in fossil fuel prices. Hold on to your hats, you've seen nothing yet.
You are listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're speaking with Paul Sinclair about urban mines. And you mentioned integrating the rural and in, in the urban experience, and I'm wondering how becoming a more urbanized species has changed the way that we actually think about rural landscapes and think about the areas outside of our urban environments. Yeah, well, I was brought up you know, many years ago the, you know, with a short, quite a sharp uh, distinction between this is the town, this is the country. I was brought up in colonial Africa and in Scotland. There was this dichotomy became our experience. And one of the nice things, some of the recent more constructivist approaches to landscape studies is that we're just becoming much more aware of that the so-called wild surroundings of urban settlement are actually constructed gardens. And the forests themselves have been the, the focus of human settlement and activities and selection processes and so on for hundreds of years. We have a much better understanding of that than we did before. So that actually contributes to your question, I think. I think we just have to accept a fuzziness of that previous divide. I like fuzzy logic. I think it's better than the hardline strict division. What you lose on your hypotheses and your assertions of positivist science, you gain a much more flexible and deeper understanding of complexity. That, I think, is just what we need. So I think that the positivist approach to modernist economy, modernist urbanism, is putting us into situations which will require significant reorganization of our settlement systems. And I think we should be, we are well advised to gird ourselves for the coming changes. And we have seen a lot of ending of civilizations and the urban mind in many ways has changed very much. I mean, the introduction of new empires brings with it a whole new sort of urban mind. And humans have only recently descended from the trees. And if you think about the length of the earth, how long the earth has been here, and civilization is extremely new. And it's about 70 lifetimes of humans have lived in civilized places. So is the urban mind just the most recent adaptation that the humans have made in their environment? And if so, what's the next evolution for humanity? As you were coming down with that rather linear view of coming down from the trees and a few generations, as an archaeologist, I had lots of questions about such things. But accepting that position, I immediately said, well, gosh, what about the next one? You know, nanotech or whatever it is. The one thing that I've been amazed at is the creativity of the urban mind. It is really enormously creative, and it's happening all the time, and it's happening with increased rapidity of reconstituting uh, ways of living and interactions of connections. I feel very ignorant, and my colleagues would hasten to agree with me on that point. When I was involved in the urban mind, uh, trying to grapple with these ideas, I started getting into some of the, the theory People like Roland Fletcher and Michael E. Smith, I mean, really good theoretical urbanists who've been involved in global contributions to archaeological scholarship. And looking at the approach, Fletcher, for instance, is really coming in with these communication thresholds and interaction thresholds, which are components, if you want, from the very beginning, from these tiny settlements of becoming larger settlements and when they move from one hectare to 10 hectare to 100 hectare to different numbers of square kilometers, there are a number of these interactions and thresholds which are crossed and constituting the way in which these settlements operate and towns operate. And what I've been watching in the urban mind is as we've had this super group of 
different scholars working together, for instance, linguistic codes in Istanbul, as there is more and more people from the outside becoming incorporated, there are enormous reflections on language and the contents of the language. And as lingua francis, but also in terms of the way in which the different language groupings interact. And it's very much part and parcel of the way in which cities are organized, and this one in particular. Now, one example of the place I was working is this wonderful site of Jenny Jenna, a town site in Mali and the inland Niger Delta. There we had a strong, incredibly complex linguistic situation, but very, very well defined. There was six or seven languages being spoken in different aspects of the way that town operated and articulated together with different language groups uh, fishing, one in the middle of the river and the other on the edge of the river, and other language group with doing the agriculture and the the herding, and the blacksmiths had their own language, and then there were the traders with a sixth language, and the complexity of all of this linking together was extraordinary. And I was just amazed, and coupled with that, this is what I found interesting from our earlier conversation, was the, you know, the 23 different types of rice that were being grown to accommodate all the external perturbations, whether they're floods or of drought and so on, and giving an enormous insurance and security. And one of the problems that we're facing, of course, and this has been said by many people who know much more about it than I do, when the monocultures come in and the cash cropping and the, the assertions, if you want, of advanced capitalist relations of production, it's very difficult. It, the cost, of course, is vulnerability. Vulnerability to perturbations, both external and internal. I was wondering about what happens when cities no longer become tenable in regards to their environment, when they are no longer able to be inhabited because they are either cut off from their food sources or cut off from key ecosystem services. Are there any core examples that you can recall from your archaeological studies or from other colleagues about what happens when these cities have to go through major population shifts? Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I understand how, how people hold tight to the near and dear and their environments you know, when we're thinking of our own civilization. But if you look back in, in time, there are enormous, lots and lots of examples of abandoned settlements. Essentially, when things are no longer able to work, they don't work and people move and cities are abandoned and new forms of expression are built up. And I would just like to point out here one. Deferus, in his uh, chapter in our book, is on the, has uh, some good examples from Iran. It is in, here we are, chapter 7. And there you can really see the shifts in rivers and, and the rest of it, how these changes. What we're aware of, a lot of people are talking about collapse. And in our view of complexity, you have both centers, like you know, the classic view of city and urban centers, but you also have heterarchical forms of organization, so-called self-organizing landscapes. And just because a urban center collapses doesn't mean to say that the area is abandoned or that it can just be that there is a different form of organization. And it does become, if you want, a rural network instead of an urban center. And then the rural network gives rise to aggregated uh, settlement at some time in the future. So it's very important to bear that in mind. And I'm thinking, you know, North America and 
some of the enormous vulnerabilities that I see in northern American cities and Phoenix and places. I, I'm just wondering, the, the whole debate on sustainability and resilience, it has to incorporate reorganization. It really does have to incorporate that, of how we can reorganize in the most effective way and in a better way of handling the, the challenges, rather than how can we maintain our unsustainable situation. And I think that we need to do this, and we need to do that fast. And we have to have basically a joint task force of people who are capable of penetrating some of these ideas and coming forward with decent solutions and contributions to urban planning and to, or to planning, let's just say, landscape planning. And I think that our, our aim with the archaeological approach is to draw upon the well of history and to contribute some sustenance to these debates. I think it's really important. And I don't want to stand up and beat the drums too much on lessons of the past and so on. I, I mean, there are some good lessons of the past. But what we do need, I think, is a, a diversity of approaches. And this diversity is something which is really, really, really important. It's the flexibility and the diversity, rather than if you want narrow-minded, neo-brutalist assertiveness of uh, urban forms, those are not going to be able to be maintained. You were mentioning about the contributions of archaeology to the ideas of uh, sustainability and resilience, and I'm wondering if you could draw out a few core examples of how archaeology can really uh, contribute to these discussions of building in sustainability and, and resilience into our civilization. Thinking of resilience in terms of one of the, the ways of looking at resilience as a function of capital investment and connectedness and resilience, it's the, the old adaptive cycle, that figure of eight. Obviously, archaeology can give you insights into each of these dimensions. We can see how, if you want, past dependencies build up and become vulnerable, very vulnerable. And you can see how they reorganize. And I think that the archaeological insights it can be summarized as basically a time dimension, a time dimension which is of sufficient depth to encapsulate the much wider range of variables than modern urban planners who are also subject to their own forms of intellectual path dependency. It's to broaden that discussion. We need to incorporate the environmental and environmental change, the external perturbations, the global warming and so on. We need to consider quite carefully the Rudderman hypothesis. We are in the Anthropocene. And we need to really have a collective which is much more diverse and much more capable of suggesting creative solutions to difficult problems. And not just to say that the past has all of the answers. We don't, not at all. But we do have a set of components and issues and experiences which I think make an interesting discussion and a, a more elaborate one. There is something else about the urban mind with Great Zimbabwe, for instance, in Southern Africa. I spent many years getting it wrong. We looked at the built environment and we looked at the surroundings. We did the phosphate mapping of 650 hectares. We drilled 200 cores, all good Cambridge style, or Kent Flannery style, uh, settlement archaeology. And we had a good framework for this. And there was something missing in it all, and I was sort of wondering what that was. And then I realized that the whole cognitive landscape had not really been incorporated at all. And over many conversations with curators and residents of the area, started seeing that there was another dimension of the city, Great Zimbabwe, 
which I call City of the Dead, in a sense. It's where the spirits were, the northeastern part of Great Zimbabwe. And it was really fascinating to see how the different spatial frames articulated with each other, both the material and the immaterial. It's that sort of approach with this really important social memory and memory and transmitted memory. It's important for us. And you might say, well, we live in modernist societies. We're not in Great Zimbabwe, Paul. This is Detroit and the rest of it. Well, then I think uh, we should draw on the well of social memory and start finding out how people were managing the Second World War, how people, what they were doing, how there were food security systems and so on, what was going on there. And these are issues which I think are worthy of being taken up in broader debate. And I, I think that I would like to see this in Southern Africa. We are now developing an historical ecology of Witwatersrand, Johannesburg and Pretoria, using Istanbul as a model, the way that we handle the Istanbul thing and the urban mind volume. We would like to have a look at the deep time perspectives underpinning you know, this enormous modernist agglomeration and dynamic urban complexes you know, which are articulating together with the electricity and the water coming in from the pseudo and the rest of it. We need to really pick up the challenge of these modern cityscapes and ask questions. You know, what are the, the time dimensions to all of this? Not only in terms of being directly the resultant of previous settlement, of course other things are happening, the global systems operating, the globalization of the capitalist system, Southern Africa and the mining and, and so on and so on. But it's this combination of factors and the flexibility of the approach. That's what we need. We must guard against path dependency and rigid interventions. They're not going to work forever. We need this flexibility, the fluidity. Is this spiritual memory, this institutional memory of these cities, one of the large factors that kind of separate like an African city from a European city? Is yeah. it the history that comes with the city kind of what influences it in both positive and negative ways? African cities have long been exploited by one another and, and of course by European interactions as well. Is that what you're saying there? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a fair observation of yours. It's a sum total of the thoughts of the participants and the urban experience. And from that point of view, you have a lot of memories. Think of your Vancouver situation, for instance. It's a fascinating city. It'd be lovely to, to start uh, thinking of Vancouver in this way, I think, and really incorporate these memories in. And just, if you want to develop cognitive mindscape, in the city and just see how that reflects or doesn't reflect or contradicts or goes against the metabolist urban engineers with sewage plants and, uh, and the rest of it. I think we have to live in these places. I'm wondering about the development of Istanbul, which is something that you dive into in the Urban Mind Project a fair amount. And I'm wondering what that has to teach us about the process of urban transformations. It's a nice question because when we first saw the satellite images of Istanbul, it was just astonishing the scale of the place and so on. And we, we looked at it, you know, as archaeologists and as linguists and as ecologists and we combined our ideas and we thought we had some good ideas and, and you know, about the importance of these green areas and the dangers of the past dependencies and the rest of it. And then just when we thought we had those sort of things sorted out, I was talking with the geologists, and they were telling me of this extremely high likelihood of a really significant earthquake hitting Istanbul in the coming 10-year period. And so it made an immediacy of our thoughts. It focused our attention. 
and it is really severe. It's much more acute than you know the San Andreas faults and so on in California. This is a this major, major problem, and all of the 12 indicators of the science are, if you want, glowing red on this one. So we are very concerned, and in terms of handling severe problems like this way, I think it's important that people are made aware of uh, a diversity of options and approaches, and just sort of a continuation on urban developments in the face of significant threats, that has to be countered or mitigated with significant undertakings in terms of architectural security and population security. And I'm told by colleagues in the work in, in the areas that the, these issues are coming high up on the agenda. So it's not to say the authorities there are not uh, responding, it's just to say that that's one example. The sort of approach, I think, is kind of significant. And it's nice, actually, as uh, archaeologists, not to always feel that you're sitting in an ivory tower, that you're actually trying to do, if you want, an archaeology of the future, even as that future can be pretty grim, can be difficult. But actually, if there's anything that archaeology teaches us, it's that the human creativity in different situations in the past, there is an enormous capacity of innovation and development and basically overcoming obstacles and difficulties. And so I think that's the thought I'd like to leave you with at the end of this interview. It is very positive that humans are able to innovate so well on the edge of destruction and band together in all sorts of different ways. And as we start thinking about the future, we start thinking about a world without this abundance of resources that we have right now. We see a world that lacks much of the resources, most significantly oil being one of those things that just has become very scarce in a lot of different ways and is becoming more scarce as we move forward into the future. What does a city of the future look like that has experienced this peak oil crisis and has adapted and, and moved past it? Well, I hope it's going to be a green city. I hope it's not going to be a concrete container. I hope that there is a fluidity and flexibility and capacity of human communities to interact in ways which are, and to develop food security approaches and to enjoy their heritage and traditions. But frankly, I'm not sure. That sunny picture, the realities can be pretty tough. And we don't know. These are debates and activities which are very, very important to pick up and to struggle for and to argue for and to come up. We think of peak oil and in my circles in the academy and some people really don't believe in that concept. And all, it's always going to be innovation and more coming up and so on. But my view is, just as you just said, the diminishing resources or as Joe Tainter, as one of our urban mind collaborators would say, the increasing cost of obtaining diminishing resources is a major factor, major point. But it's not only oil, you know, there's a whole load of other resources. I was told that it was peak gold five years ago and so on. And we just have to learn to reduce our consumption and balance it. Uh, these are just platitudes. I don't think we can just go on innovating our way out of problems. I think we have to have a fundamental rethink of how we do. Sharing is one thing, of course. Again, these are difficult to do. In the meantime, you know, we sit and share them. Other people are exploiting remaining resources to increasing extents. I think that echo-flict and conflict over resources is a factor. It's going to be an increasing factor. We see it in different areas. I find it difficult to be cool-headed. We do need cool heads to deal with global warming. Again, I just fall back on the collective and the albeit late realization of the gravity of some of these problems. 
In Africa, we see some very severe effects of the global change issues, Sahara and elsewhere, and the areas around. And I think that we have to be mindful of a shared problem. And in all too many situations, with the, the haves focusing on what they've got and maintaining what they've got, the resilience or the sustainability debate essentially moves on to how best can we maintain our hegemony. I don't think that sort of thinking is going to be possible to maintain, but I, I see how it, how it goes. I, I look with interest at your generation's efforts in such regards. Yeah, there's so much to tackle, and it's a big challenge. And so thanks for speaking with us today, Paul. Any last thoughts to leave us with? You know, one sometimes feels like a total dinosaur if one tries to exist in a non-capitalist world. But the money that we got from this uh, Urban Wine Project, it comes from a rather interesting source. Mistra is the uh, strategic environmental uh, foundation for strategic environmental research. And it comes from the workers' funds. They were buying parts of companies. So the workers becoming more and more uh, owners of the companies. And then in one of the governments that came through, these were dismantled and the money was put into a foundation for essentially societal, environmental and societal research. And archaeology has never accessed this before, but they had an open call for ideas. I responded to that and uh, we just fired in, uh, we fired in a, an, an idea to them to to get 50 humanists together to make a contribution. The, the foundation had been supporting an enormous grant for the Resilience Centre, the Stockholm Resilience Centre, which was very good on the uh, on, on resilience theory and ecology and system ecologies, we call it in Sweden, but uh, less uh, focus on the humanities. And I thought that Uppsala could, uh, we could rattle the bones in our cupboards and try and uh, try and get uh, colleagues to think in a different way about their years and years of work. So that's what the Urban Mind book really reflects, is people being asked to think about what they've done and contributed into a new framework. That's cool and that you, you got a, so, I know, like a different funding source than, than the traditional one. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, referee journal articles and this and that, and, you know, books published in this and that, high-level, uh, you know, uh, university presses and so on, that was, uh, I mean, that is the, the bread and butter demands, if you want, of modern, uh, you know, late capitalist academia. And, of course, one, one has to respond as best one can to those. But for yeah. us, uh, we, we wanted our results out quickly. We, want, we didn't want to, you know, to be waiting and, you know, going through um, extended processes in, you know, 18 months, two years. We wanted it out because we wanted to show the environmental foundation that we humanists could deliver on time. Uh, it's very important, you know, that uh, humanists are not just seen as ivory tower thinkers who are eventually cough up something, you know, five, ten years down the track. We wanted to get it on time, delivered in a way that ordinary people could uh, have access to with and students and so on in a, in, a, in a good way. So that's how we used the funding. And uh, I'm not sorry at all. I think that's, uh, it's been interesting. You never really know how important things that you're doing are, how they turn out to be. Some of them turn out not to be important, but other ones that you don't think are very important. Are, it's like a diamond, you know, and the one side of the diamond, you do things right in the right way. And the other side, you try and avoid doing things wrong in the wrong way. But in between, you do things right in the wrong way and do things wrong in the right way. And you have to have the tolerance and 
be kind to yourselves and thinking that you can't get it right in the right way all the time, or hardly ever in fact. But when that happens, you'll know how it feels. Do what you enjoy and get on with it and don't give up. I don't want to talk If it makes you feel sad And I understand You've come to shake my hand I apologize If it makes you feel bad Seeing me so tense No self-confidence it all The winner takes it all And that wraps up our interview with Paul Sinclair about the urban mind and ancient urban gardens and I was really fascinated to hear that urban gardening has been part of city life for a very long time and I thought it was really encouraging that when Paul was living in Mozambique, people were able to go out into the streets and start gardening in the middle of a food crisis. And he drew parallels to the example of post-Soviet Cuba, where they essentially went through a peak oil crisis decades before we've had to go through and had to de-industrialize their agriculture rapidly. And so it hasn't just happened in Cuba, it's happened in other places too. And the government just got out of the way, saw how poorly they were managing the situation and saw how well people were managing the situation and just got out of the way. So that's an, actually an interesting point that you bring up about the urban gardening, Justin, because in the United States, there's been an epidemic of these things called food deserts, where there's no actual produce food available for people for, for anywhere anywhere near them. They have to go to corner grocery stores where they can get processed food. They eat fast food and hot dogs and things like that. And it becomes a real problem when you don't have those trucks coming in, bring, dropping off groceries, dropping off those processed foods for people to eat. Yeah, and I think it's encouraging of looking at the example of Mozambique and seeing how people started gardening and growing food. But it's not like all of a sudden you go from not growing food to growing food. It's something that develops over time. And also, it's not like you suddenly have the amount of food that you need to get by. You have a little bit of food, which is better than starving. It doesn't mean that you're not hungry. So... It's conceivable that if there's a food crisis in the U.S., there are certainly areas that could start gardening and could start converting green area into uh, productive food areas. But I don't know, Seth, do you see in your area suddenly if you were cut off from all supply chains, how do you think people would react? Would they go out into the street and garden or would they react differently? Well, I know when the snow comes here in uh, Durham, North Carolina, that people react very crazily to the fact that there's this white precipitation that's going to collect on all the roads. This is also probably due to the fact that our town gets maybe a couple inches of snow a year and we have one snow plow in the town. But like you're, t you're saying, Justin, you need this preparedness. This is something that, that goes along with a lot of the issues that we talk about on the show with the with, uh, economic infrastructure with the agricultural infrastructure and I'm lucky to be in a very agricultural area that has a, a access to a whole bu bunch of farmland that has a lot of farmers markets that take care of a lot of the food supply in this area and I really believe that you know in this this triangle area where I live 
that we would actually be okay. In terms of the agricultural food supply in this area, I think that the farms would step up production in a big way and it would it would make up for the amount of food that was not being able to be transported here. I'm sure there would be a lot of people whose stomachs would not be getting filled, but we actually live in a, in a perfect area for growing food in your garden, your backyard. And I'm sure that there would be a whole lot more of that kind of stuff going on. Those empty lots would be converted to community gardens. Um, instead of playgrounds, you would have big work areas where people would just get together and grow food in their neighborhoods. And I think that really is the future, is, is these kind of group air, group farming operations that are just going to take care of large neighborhoods of people. And that's going to be the way that people feed themselves. Yeah, and more people are going to be full-time farmers, but there's also going to be more food growing on behalf of everybody, and we're all going to be part of it. And you're really fortunate to live in an area with a lot of green space, and even though the issue is sprawl, absolutely sprawl is an issue, at least you do have green space where you can grow food. In a lot of cities in the U.S. or in the world, there's just no green space to grow meaningful food. I mean, can you imagine being in the middle of Manhattan and then suddenly having to garden? There's not a lot of green space to grow anything in. Or right? being in a place that's really dry, like maybe Arizona or in New Mexico where they only have a lot of desert out in their backyard they don't have any soil that can actually support agriculture or you know up up in some northern place where they have only cold weather and they can't really grow much that's going to be real tough those places are just going to become abandoned and no one's going to be able to live in areas where you can't grow food and i really think that's an important selection piece for looking at where you want to live and where you want to place yourself if you can think of the areas that can undergo a agricultural revolution in the period of a uh, few years or even a few months, that's a really important thing to to look at and adjust to. And I think that it's not like all of a sudden people are going to go out and start gardening. I mean, I mentioned on a few episodes ago that I did a permaculture blitz in my front yard and it went amazing. And I'm so incredibly grateful to all the people that turned out. I even met an extra environmentalist listener that lived nearby and heard about it on the show, which was really awesome. So it was great to meet Natalie. But it did go to show that you could transform a patch of land incredibly quickly. And if tons of people got out there, they could transform a city so fast that it really is encouraging. But that in the middle of a crisis, you know, people might be freaking out. And Paul Sinclair mentioned during the interview that when you go out into wilderness where there's absolutely no human structure uh, around you, he saw this person who was like already drawing out the house and how she would plan where she would live because she already had the structure in her mind of how the built environment looked. And I think that's a large part of what we're trying to do in our show too. Because when suddenly your structure goes away or it has a wrecking ball, your society structure has a wrecking ball that just smashes through it. It's not like you suddenly emerge on the other side with like a clean slate. What you have is a lot of people with ideas of how things should be and how they want to rebuild it. And so hopefully a lot of the people that we talk to can provide that new structure in people's minds so when the time does come to rebuild, everyone can start building it from a much better model instead of trying to rebuild the old system of growth and industrial corporate capitalism that we have now. That's very true, Justin. But another thing I did want to bring up is an urban mind. Did you know that you have an urban mind, Seth? Yeah, I, I definitely have an urban mind. My mind is extremely urbanized. Well, not even that, but that every city has an urban mind of its own, as Paul was talking about. And through 
the Urban Mind Project. It's this whole amalgam of a city's history and the way that it exists on the planet. I think the best way to even start using an Urban Mind is to know that you have one, to know that there is a certain psychology of a city that it imparts on people. And I think that in cities have their own way of thinking that interact with all the people that live there and then help to produce particular things or match with people's personalities. And I thought that was really fascinating to talk about how urban minds differ between continents and cities. In, in one of our upcoming interviews, we talk with one of our guests about how you can actually feel the vitality of a city when you get off the plane, you're walking through the city center and you can actually feel the, the life and the, the and the vitality of the people kind of just coming to, to you and you just you see it in the way that they interact with each other you see it you see it in the way that they eat and the food that they consume and the way that they they kind of just you know get get around and it's just very interesting comparing say an American New York City to uh, Barcelona very different places absolutely and it's because of this urban mind that Paul and many other archaeologists are putting together and starting to talk about. So I think that's really exciting and it gets into the whole concept of the noosphere, which we can talk about on a future episode, which actually has a lot to do with our show. But getting back to what Paul Sinclair was talking about, he mentioned a really interesting thing. He said that oftentimes, he said that it's possible to think of cities as population slumps instead of glimmering towers of achievement. And I think that's a really opposite view of what a lot of people in the mainstream would say. They point to statistics about cities and they point to, you know, triumph of cities and they just say, you know, how much more intelligent and amazing cities are making people. But then there's the other view where you go to cities in developing countries and you're like, wow, this place is horrible. What a mess. And I think it's just completely a counter view to what you're used to encountering in the mainstream. But We've been talking about how the past can help us adapt to some of the issues of scarcity that we're facing today and how archaeologists can help. But in looking at a post-growth future, next we're going to be speaking with Donnie McClarkin about his work in the Post-Growth Institute and in asset mapping to use the people around you to help build that post-growth future. Tune in at the end of today's show to The Situation Bunker. We've got all the latest coverage for your election. Is your election cold at night? If it is, put a blanket on it. This is CNN, the Collapse News Network. Count on it! This is CNN, the Collapse News Network, where more Americans get their news than they even realize. listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're speaking with Donnie McClurkin about post-growth futures. Donnie McClurkin, thanks for joining us from Sydney, Australia today to talk about the Post-Growth Institute. And we were talking earlier in this episode with Paul Sinclair from the University of Uppsala in Sweden about ancient urban gardens and evidence in the past about how people may do without economic growth. And so we wanted to talk to you about post-growth futures. And in starting out there, what led you into thinking about and working on post-growth futures? Well, thanks, Justin. Thanks, Seth. Great to be talking with you both. I think really, uh, for me, it's, it's just a natural step for an inquiring mind to actually move into that post-growth space. 
the way things are emerging in terms of climate science, in terms of peak oil, peak phosphorus, peak all sorts of things, and also in terms of human happiness and the lack of correlation beyond a certain point in terms of income and, and increases in happiness. I think there, there are some obvious questions to be asking about, uh, can we really grow on like this? And to me, it's the idealist that would say that we can and the realist that would pull things back and say, well, hold on a second. We live in a world with biophysical limits. What does that mean in terms of evolving as a collective species uh, and ensuring our preservation and, and, in fact, our thriving? I guess there's also things that more pertinently in my life have popped up when I was about maybe 10 years of age. I used to go collecting things from local throwouts, um, you know, where people were throwing things out for the councils to pick up. And one day I was rummaging through uh, this throwout in, in the street just up the road from where I lived, and I found a whole lot of money that people had thrown out. I think about $15 worth of US coins, the quarters uh, from memory. And it was an experience like that that really made me uh, question the value that people were attaching to money. Uh, and the, this notion of a throwaway society, and we've seen it certainly in, in Australia here where now there's uh, in the local throwouts, you start to see the plasma screen TV emerge on the streets, people just chucking them out. Throughout my life, things like that kept popping up, uh, working with the homeless in Sydney and working as a telephone counsellor here and discovering that a whole lot of the presumptions I'd made growing up about people's happiness and that if you get a job and you become a CEO, you're set up for life and then finding that they were on the other end of the, the phone line talking to me as a telephone counsellor or they were on the streets uh, of Sydney going hungry. Those sorts of things really shocked me into thinking, well, how do we make a world that works for all? So by throughouts, you were talking when North America, we would call that dumpster diving, perhaps? Not quite. So in Australia, um, we have dumpster diving as well. This is more when you've got things that people put on the side of the road uh, at a regular period, maybe three or five times a year for the local council to pick up and take to the tip. And the tip is is the dump. The tip is the dump, yeah. But okay. um, So it's not stuff that's in bins. It's just stuff that's left on the side of the road in a big uh, – It's it only happens every three or four months, and then a big truck will come along and pick it up. And it's big, bulky items, you know, TVs, tables, uh, vacuum cleaners, those sorts of things. And do those things usually make their way into other people's – um, houses? Or do people often go around picking those things up from the from the throwouts? Very rarely. Uh, I think, in fact, it's illegal. Oh, really? Yeah. So, so what you're doing was illegal, going around finding the, the things that people. Were I mean, technically. Away. I yeah. mean, but this was also in very affluent uh, communities. So often, you know, you'd get a, a strange look from people driving past in their car, who, and you'd sort of be living in that fear of, you know, like, well, is someone going to stop and pull up and say, what are you doing? Because this is outside very wealthy houses and, and sometimes really amazing things. I mean, I, I remember returning home with incredible pieces of art. Well, I thought they were incredible anyway. My mum certainly didn't think so, but I'd put them up on the walls and I remember getting chisel sets and all sorts of tools that I'd find, bicycles, lots of things that people would throw out that with a little bit of uh, DIY love certainly could, uh, could be repaired and, and reused again. So this is this was in your youth. As you got older, did you start any other kind of projects? Or did you did you kind of transfer this kind of throw out collection kind of thing into into anything else in your life? Did you have any other projects? I looked into it actually. Uh, it's one of the projects on the back burner. I think there there is something similar in North America where you would just create a dynamic directory of all the throwouts that were happening across a country, so that anyone could log in if they've moved to a new area or they're looking for some furniture, et cetera, they could 
log in and see when the next council pickup was happening. It's not something that I've been able to do yet. And again, I, I heard that there were some legalities involved in, in publicising those sorts of things. But in my local community, I'm doing something which has a little bit of crossover at the moment. So I live in a river community about an hour north of Sydney. Maybe a thousand people living um, across about eight different communities based on this Hawkesbury River. And we just finished yesterday the delivery of these community directory questionnaires, which allow people to mention what their passions, knowledge, skills, resources they have, what, they, what those things are and what they'd like to share amongst each other, whether that's on a paid basis or a barter basis, a negotiated basis or for free. And it's it's been going really, really well. We've got about 200 things already that people have said they want to share. You get to say how willingly you want to make things available full-time, part-time, casual or emergency. And we've had things already like someone's said they're willing to share their speedboat uh, in the case of an emergency. Other people want to connect around playing cards. Other people have got business services that they're offering. And I think that relocalization, that uh, shift to collaborative consumption, in my experience, has come from that experience of waste in our society and trying to reduce waste because in a small town like the one I live in at the moment, there's a huge amount of entropy in terms of the energy that exists here. People go out of town for just about every service that they need. Yet 30 years ago, it certainly wasn't the way. Neoliberalism had a huge impact on the way people have shifted their workplaces to outside of this town that used to have a bakery, used to have a dairy, used to have a butcher's, and now uh, seemingly has very little of those things. You're working to help facilitate that transition to uh, relocalized future to help bring more of those services to be local to the regions in Australia and around the world through the Post-Growth Institute. Could you tell us a little bit about what the Post-Growth Institute is, how you started it, and what some of the exciting projects that you're facilitating through it uh, really are? Right. So the Post-Growth Growth Institute's an international group that looks at futures beyond economic growth, ones in which we can thrive and really feel more secure than ever. It's a, an international network that works virtually. So we have people in Sweden, Denmark, the US, Canada, Australia, uh, and more recently in Algeria. At the beginning, we did something quite different in comparison to most groups that might get together and say, hey, let's look at alternative economic futures. And it's important in terms of the way that some of the projects we're working on at the moment have rolled out. So the first thing we did was just map our own assets for the first three months of our existence. We didn't look at any of the problems. And in mapping those assets, we discovered a whole lot of passions, knowledge, skills, resources that exist within our own group, as well as a whole lot of things like the social network influences that each of us have that have proven really helpful for rolling out the kinds of projects that we're engaged in at the moment. And so those things have involved Free Money Day, which hopefully we'll get a chance to chat about a little bit later on. And that's an international day where people get to hand out their own notes or coins two at a time, asking people to pass half of the amount on to sort of stimulate some new thinking, uh, catalyze some new thinking about more sharing economies. We've also got a huge database that's on the verge of being launched called HowOnEarth.us, and that's where we've pulled together about 5,000 things from around the world, principles, practices, activities, events, etc., that all seem to embody post-growth philosophies. Uh, and could continue to thrive or help catalyze post-growth futures. And we also, earlier this year, launched a bit of a parody on the Forbes Rich List called the Enrich List, where we, we took the design of the Forbes Rich List and customized that template to suit our own needs and came up with 100 people that we thought were doing some of the most enriching work historically or, or in the present. 
No, I get that Forbes magazine. I, I don't know why I get it. It just comes in my mailbox all the time. And I look at it and it's just all rich people all the time. And, you know, that's that's something that is probably not going to be around for very much longer because as we can see in Europe and all over the all of the United States, these ideas of post-growth future are really becoming reality. Uh, and you live in Sydney right now. Can you tell us how a post-growth future might look in, in Australia, in Sydney? Sure. Well, I think it's it's first probably worth noting some of the great things that are happening here in Sydney on which post-growth futures will build. So we've got a lot of community projects uh, and startup initiatives that are happening here, particularly in the pop-up space and the collaborative consumption space. And these are really addressing a lot of things like the challenges that we're facing here in Sydney around urban sprawl, unhealthy forms of competition, uh, educational challenges. Uh, there's a big public-private debate in terms of funding and support that goes on here, as well as unemployment, which even though it's low relative to countries elsewhere, is still a, a topical issue as to housing shortages. So I think in a post in post-growth futures here in Sydney, you'd be looking at very different alternative forms of education that actually empower students to think really creatively, to think internationally, to think big picture. So it's systems thinking, it's things like having improvisation theatre to build confidence amongst students. It's about understanding the return to vocation rather than just a work that's going to provide you with an income that can then allow you with leisure time in addition to that. I think coming back to, to ideas of following passions, using the incredible things that have happened with the web to actually piggyback that and, and to now start to map things in new ways that allow people to use services differently. So, for example, that, that issue of housing shortages. In post-growth futures, there shouldn't be an accommodation issue in a place like Sydney. In my small town here on the Hawkesbury River, there's heaps of unused accommodation, you know, whether it's rentals or whether it's things uh, that people are sitting on just for investment, for capital gains, or, uh, or using negative gearing here, which is, uh, which is a concept that became popular in the 80s in Australia. These sorts of things mean that we have that, that ridiculous situation where people are, are without a home and yet there's houses that just sit empty. So I think fundamental uh, to post-growth futures is thinking about the fundamental needs of a community to, to thrive successfully, mapping the assets, relocalizing the economy, therein being able to shrink the overall requirements for economic growth and economic product within that community. And in doing so, taking the pressure off a community to expand continually. And a big one in that sense is also going to be addressing the population issue. Because whilst the, the Sydney population continues to expand at a, at a very fast rate, you just will continue to have the pressures of urban sprawl. And you will need to continue the GDP uh, treadmill because you're always trying to increase the service provision to places further and further out from the centre. So I think it's about having some of those big picture conversations that are going to usher in very different, but also similar in some senses in terms of building on existing strengths, post-growth futures. Some of the challenges of looking at a future without growth may seem to some people like the austerity that's going on in Greece or Spain right now, where people are becoming rapidly, you know, impoverished and their mobility is reduced. How do you look past some of the more dire possibilities of a future without growth um, and looking at building a post-growth economy without a collapse? The key word that you mentioned there is building. Um, there's certainly a difference between building post-growth futures and just having recessions roll in because of mismanagement or because of an economy or an economic cycle that is continually um, geared towards collapse. So I think part of this here is about 
asking people, coming back to some fundamental questions about what people actually need rather than what people necessarily all want. And we haven't had that austerity uh, experience here in Australia in the last little while. So I'm a bit removed from that experience that's happening in Europe at, at the present. But it certainly seems, for example, that there's, there are challenges with what's happening in the big society approach in the UK, for example, where a whole lot of not-for-profits are now needing to shut down and service provision is going to reduce because of the, the government farming out responsibilities to the private sector, et cetera, and to social enterprise. And it's important for people to, to realise that at the end of the day, capitalism has actually done some amazing things on which we can build in order to transcend capitalism itself. And one of those is that it's built up some incredible infrastructure, whether that be virtual infrastructure or physical infrastructure, that we can actually build on if we just step back for a moment and say, what are our existing strengths? You see, in most Western economies, we're geared to, and in large part because of the messages that we hear from advertising, from government, etc., we're geared to thinking about what we don't have. It's a deficit model of thinking. Now, if we just pause for a second and start looking at what we already have, even in situations of austerity, you see this, that people, when they bind together, when they come together and they look at what strengths they have, you realise their incredible wealth of talents, resources, etc., that have been largely considered latent for a long time or not acknowledged for a long time. That's the great thing. The world might be going uh, down the gurgler in terms of environmentally, perhaps in terms of social dislocation, but if you take an objective assessment at the strengths and the existing resources that, that are here right now, there is more than enough for us to satisfy all the needs that people have across communities worldwide. It's very interesting that when people start uh, not having all the resources and access to everything that they need, that they really are resourceful and they are uh, they can find ways to feed themselves. But before we before we get to that place, we're still in this in this kind of we're still in the acceptance phase. We're not able to really understand what's happening and everyone looking to te towards technology to say hey we can just innovate our way out of it i saw today that apple computer is now the top grossing company in the entire world can you tell us your views on the appropriate technology and its role in the post-growth future sure and i think uh, it's probably worth leading off with just a, a short observation on apple there because I found it interesting to see how so many of my friends who were involved in the Occupy movement were essentially uh, heartbroken, you know, writing lots of supportive messages, etc. when Steve Jobs passed away. Now, that to me was an interesting thing to consider, that you would be rallying against certain kinds of concentration of wealth, but you wouldn't perhaps see Steve Jobs as fitting within that space. And I think that's just a, something that's interesting to consider about who we idolise. And there's certainly in, in Australia a, a huge obsession at the moment in the news about startups, particularly tech startups. And it does raise that question uh, of what is appropriate technology. And I've found that in, in working with people that there's a very limited, very shallow, very surface analysis of the technologies that we engage with. It's very much focused on what can technology do in terms of the enabling factor? And the base assumption written in is, is that technologies are beneficial um, or, at, or at worst neutral. But a more critical look at technology actually understands that any technology in terms of physical artifacts actually has a whole lot of values embedded 
in the production of that technology, whether that means that the technology is accessible for people with disability, whether it's got certain religious or cultural values built in to do with shape or to size or to colour, um, whether it's got a certain environmental footprint that is uh, that is reasonable or unreasonable in terms of the production process, whether it's got gender bias built into it. And so appropriate technology for me is something that is truly appropriate for the people that it's using, uh, that are using it, for the people that develop it, for, for everyone involved in the process. It means, in essence, moving forward, what E.F. Schumacher talked about so long ago in his Small is Beautiful seminal research book about technology being locally appropriate, locally sensitive, locally created. I think this is where some really exciting things are happening, like Marcin Jakubowski's work uh, in Missouri with the Factor E farm, where he's taking open source design combining that with a whole lot of passionate volunteers, uh, many of them engineers, and saying, let's see if we can use scrap metal open source design and create the 50 fundamental machines of industrial production on a local basis. And that's something that we've seen certainly emerging, which is very exciting in the appropriate technology space, is the DIY technology um, futures, the 3D printing, the open design, open source, open access in terms of scientific research. And I think these things are part of a relocalization movement that can see us shift back to appropriate technology, where you don't see components uh, of technologies getting shipped in from different parts of the world necessarily with high ecological footprints or tied in with slave labor or trafficking or these sorts of things. That's where appropriate technology intersects with post-growth futures. And, and speaking about technology, I see so many incredible innovators, so many really intelligent people who are pursuing the typical notions of what technological development has looked like for the last few decades and, you know, wanting to work for major corporations or the military. And as you're saying, there's so many ways that we can use technology in meaningful ways. What do you really see as barriers for people in starting to uh, use technology or other methods uh, that they can use to provide for themselves and their communities beyond what were provided uh, through corporate capitalism? It's important for people to take heart from the small ways in which they can rebuild trust, whether it's the neighbour helping another neighbour and both of them getting a good little charge out of that in terms of rebuilding that trust, which probably for the last 30 years has been eroded um, through the, the neoliberal project where it's been the I generation, the focus on individualism. And so in other words, the barriers really in moving towards resilient futures are largely psychological. It's how comfortable are you to actually start questioning uh, whether or not you can run a business, for example, in a not-for-profit uh, structure. How comfortable are you to question the lecturer in your economics class about the obsession or the fundamental assumption that we have to always continue growing? And I think these things come back to our confidence in ourselves to be actually actually be resilient. This is something that E.F. Schumacher talked about a long time ago, and it's only headed in a certain direction since he spoke about it. In terms of the amount of time, I think he calculated that the average person in the UK back in the 70s was spending about an eighth of an hour per week on productive things that actually related to their own well-being. And I think this is something that in this day and age where we move towards online to the service sector economy, uh, where we remove ourselves or have removed ourselves, many of us, from 
own production of things that we need, whether it be the table um, in our house or the food that, that goes on that table. These sorts of things have subtly undermined our confidence in our own ability to be resilient. Moving into that space of post-growth futures where we look beyond the for-profit corporation, etc., is about coming back to those assets and rediscovering that strength. I find for me, for example, my work within the men's movement and, and being initiated as a man last year was an incredibly re-empowering process in discovering what I'd forgotten about myself as a man in this world and my ability to be resilient as a human being and to help provision the resilience of those around me. I wanted to ask you about the uh, man movement. What is the man movement and how are you initiated now into the man movement? Last year, I was initiated uh, as a man through an organization called the Mankind Project. They're, they exist in about 45 different countries. And what they do is they have a, a program called New Warrior Training Adventure, which is a weekend-long initiation ceremony that actually draws on many of the spiritual and customary practices that exist across cultures throughout history. And one of the interesting things here is they found that in, in developing these programs early on, that if you look at the processes of initiation that exist across uh, men's and in fact women's movements, when you look at those processes throughout history, even if the cultures were geographically isolated and not communicating with each other, they all had the same fundamental tenets involved in their initiation processes. And fundamental to them were some kind of journey, some kind of hero's journey, where the initiate would go through a process of, of moving into, into their shadow, exploring the darker side of their nature, and then emerging through that, having acknowledged that shadow in front of fellow brothers, to actually being able to embrace that and to live with the shadow side of, of existence and to continually be working on that and to discover what it means to be a man in the 21st century, to actually understand what it means to be a peaceful warrior, which is something that, that gets bandied around from time to time but is, uh, is often just paid lip service to. So I think this is something that we notice in Australia and, and, and I imagine it's similar in North America where the typical initiation ceremony for a man is to see just how much alcohol they can drink uh, when they turn 18 or 21. And I think we miss out on a whole lot of stuff here when we don't acknowledge that it means something to transition into manhood. It certainly has historically in terms of responsibilities. And it's something that if we can return to some of those processes as, as certain people are doing, it can be a very empowering process in terms of looking at what is my role in society? How can I best contribute and how can I best provision that resilience that's so needed? And so speaking about providing that resilience and using assets, you do a process called asset mapping. Can you tell us a little bit about how you go about that and the, what it provides to the groups that you work with? It can be absolutely anything that you're looking to, to gain from in terms of understanding about where a group's strengths already lie. You can do it as an individual, um, as, as many people have done that over time, or you can do it as, as a group or you can focus on a particular project and look at the strengths. So it's got its basis in asset-based community development and, and strengths-based approaches and appreciative inquiry. And what it means is, for example, if, if I was to say, I'm going to look at some of my assets today, if I'm engaging in a new project with you, Justin, or, or Seth, we might have a questionnaire that one of us sets up or, or we collectively set up which say, what are the questions the answers to which uh, would provide some really useful stuff for us to work together on. So we might say, what are five things that you're passionate about, that I'm passionate about? What are five things that I've got some knowledge around? And what are five things that I can actually do with my hands? And 
I map those things down and then I might ask some other questions like, who are the people that I know that are key influencers in my local community, nationally, internationally? What experience do I have in web development or in design or in engaging with the media, these sorts of things? And once you do that, very, very quickly, you're actually tapping into the process there of crowdsourcing. So in the space of, of 20 minutes with a group of 100 people, we can get eight or 900 things up on the wall that people had no idea existed within a group. And often these are, these are groups of complete strangers that, I, that I'm working with. And then they can say, right, how do we then want to assemble those assets? Um, for example, with a recent project I was working with, Transition Bondi, which is part of the Transition Towns movement, we identified using what's called a Delphi method, which is three rounds of voting uh, with people being able to comment on, on the things that matter to the most. We identified five key areas that this group thought would be most critical and most useful for leveraging in terms of transition in their local area. Once we'd done that, they'd already mapped their assets and I asked them to assign their assets. And these are things that can be really random, like I'm passionate about swimming or I like uh, I like going to the movies. And you put those things then on the table and you say, please self-allocate those assets that you've got here to the five areas that you've identified as key leverage points. And so they did this and simultaneously you ask people to, if they want to put their name up to lead a group in terms of a committee that might be emerging out of this, they can do that and put their name next to a committee if they want to join that group. And so in the space of a couple of hours, They've identified the five key areas, starting off with about 30 different things originally. They managed to assign about 300 assets across the five different areas. They formed committees. Uh, they they had leaders for all, all but one of the projects. A couple of them had co-leaders. And the amazing thing was only 15 of the 30 people there on the night were actually part of the Transition Bondi movement. The other 15 had just walked in off the street. Most of the people there didn't know each other. And in a short period of time, they'd formed groups with stuff that they said they were willing to share themselves. The five issue areas that they'd identified, they all agreed they had voted for them at one point uh, or another during the night. So in other words, you can get quick results just by looking at what the strengths there are, what people are willing to share, and putting some qualifications on those on that in terms of how how willing you are to share things and whether or not you want to charge for things. And it's a very powerful method that I'm continuing to explore and, and learn more about every day. So can you asset map like our podcast or does it have to be done in a community? What, what, where is the context for the asset mapping? You could map, asset map anything you wanted to. So for example, if you were focusing on, on this podcast, you start off with your basic demographics. So you know, what are what are the strengths that we already have here? What have we got in terms of all the people who, who we've interviewed? Who's most likely to be interested in helping us out in future with this? What have we got in terms of physical resources? Whether there's any particular resources in terms of networks, etc., or support services that you haven't tapped into? So, for example, looking at something like Idea Encore in North America uh, as one of those places that you could get a whole lot more support to help build your podcasting service and understanding that in doing a process where you might ask a question uh, of each of you both and maybe put it out to to your support close supporters along the lines of where are some places that we can get free or cheap support for building our podcast network and i might write back and say for example well have you checked out 5rr.com that's a, a website where people put up what they're willing to do for five dollars and those are sorts of things that are actually assets incredible assets that exist within networks that often go unspoken because we're so busy on just trying to do the work which we're meant to do that we forget, hey, 
there's a whole lot of latent information here or resources, physical resources, etc. that just because no one's ever asked the question haven't been proffered uh, to the group. So the Occupy movement built a really strong showing last year. It's still around, but it's not manifesting as strongly as it was. Rio Plus 20 was a big disappointment on the global environmental movement. How do you think the movement for a post-growth future could maybe use some of these tools of asset mapping or actually start shaping itself here in the near future? I think it's important to say that it's already happening. For mine, post-growth futures won't necessarily fit under any particular banner, whether it's Occupy or uh, an environmentalist 350.org kind of banner, etc. I think post-growth futures are diverse by their very nature. But there is something here that has been missing. You can map assets till the cows come home. And you'll still miss an important point, which was the main challenge that was leveled at Occupy and is the main reason why Rio Plus 20 failed. It is that you need a macroeconomics of non-accumulation to be put forward as a model. Until you start looking at some kind of macroeconomic framework which is incentivized for innovation, which is able to be inclusive as compared to the Occupy sort of 99 versus the 1%, until you put forward something that allows people to say, ah, this is how we evolve an economic system beyond capitalism, then I think you're wasting your time. Not that we're not building important networks and and rediscovering important things at the moment we are, but until you have that inflection point where you can actually say that's the economic framework in which we exist that we want to move towards over the next 50 years, then you're just basically wasting time. The interim, though, until that emerges, it is important that we continue to build that community such that we're able to transition when that model, wherever it emerges, when it does actually emerge. And I think it's also an important observation, perhaps, to think about uneconomic growth as the rallying point. Throughout history, whether it's the feminist movement, Marxist, humanitarian, environmental, I think the fundamental thing that was missing in terms of, of that rallying point was identifying growth or uneconomic growth as the thing that that most needed people to bandy around. Everyone put forward their different kinds of critiques, etc., but missed the point that in a system growing where you have biophysical limits, there will be pressures put on all sorts of aspects of society, whether it's gender, disability, uh, race, migration, etc., etc. So those are my my observations on on where the movement's going. And and I think Occupy will see a revival in the next few months, but I think that the revival will always be subdued until that new economic framework uh, is ushered in and people can believe it and see it already happening. So you've done some work with this deficit model of thinking and this movement for non-accumulation in Australia. And I've watched a video where you guys were actually on the street handing out money to people. Now, is this just you guys had a lot of extra money, you wanted to give it away? What, what was the reasoning behind this? On September 15th, um, for the second year in a row, we'll be running Free Money Day. And it's not because myself or the, the rest of the team are cashed up. Uh, far from it. In fact, I'll be hoping to give away about $500 when I'm running this in, in D.C. this September. And that'll probably be my last $500. But the point here is to to move away from that thinking of, needs dependency, so where people hand out cash uh, in terms of philanthropy or because people ask for it. And to actually shock us into some very different thinking and to help rebuild that trust 
by handing money to complete strangers, that pay it forward style of a model. And when we did this last year, I handed out $1,000 with a few people in a town hall here in Sydney. And it took four hours. People just wouldn't take the money um, on the whole. But when they did, the transformation was amazing. It was only a couple of dollars we were handing to people, the equivalent of a couple of uh, dollar bills. And yet people came back to us and said, this has never happened to me before. One woman came up and said she had never been gifted anything in the entire 70 years she'd been on this planet. Another person broke down in tears. They just lost their job and said how meaningful it was that someone cared enough to give her something while such a desperate situation. And interestingly, a guy uh, who was living on the streets at the time, he said, I've been homeless for 15 years and I actually get frustrated by the homeless asking me for money all the time. He said the antidote to that or one antidote is to actually just give more without being asked for it and then you wouldn't have people begging all the time. So I thought that was an interesting observation. It was it happened in about 65 different locations around the world, uh, 19 different cities, and we had people in Pakistan, Vietnam, Argentina, the US, uh, across Europe and in Australia involved. So it really was a global event. We're looking forward to this year's event, uh, really inspiring people to think more critically and more hopefully about uh, sharing in terms of finances, etc., to question how money is created. Uh, most people don't realize that only 3% of the world's finances are actually in physical form. Most people don't understand the concept of money being created as debt through the banking system and fractional reserves. So there's plenty of information people can find on our website, freemoneyday.org, that explains those things in in very uh, simple language that's accessible to everyone. I see it as a way to kind of spark that conversation of saying like, hey, here's where money comes from. But also, do you think that the reason people have such an amazing reaction or an emotional reaction is because there's this idea of scarcity attached to money? I'm not sure about that. Um, I guess this year we'll learn a little bit more in that direction. But I think the reason that the the Post-Growth Institute chose money as the thing to give away as compared to free hugs, which was something that inspired us uh, in this direction, is that people are so attached to money in that sense. Giving away an apple if you have one with you may be more easy than giving away the dollar that it might have cost you to purchase that apple. So I think that's an interesting point to touch on is to see how willing people are. I mean, I found giving away money last year at first, even though I had planned the event and I had the money there in a big bucket, my first few dollars that I handed away, I felt like a longing to keep the money for a second. And I think that's an interesting thing to think of how addicted are we to the drug of money and what we think it it offers. And it certainly does offer many things in in certain circumstances. But to question how much is enough what benefits are there for us all if we share a little bit more? And really, is there is there something going on here in terms of the way money is sold to us that really is uh, is a false sell in terms of uh, the continual always wanting more, always expecting that that more is going to provide us with greater happiness, etc. Um, because the evidence suggests that beyond a certain point, that that correlation in terms of increasing happiness with increasing dollars just doesn't exist. So it sounded like it was a little bit hard to give away five hundred dollars or thousand dollars in in uh, coins, right? How how are the people that were actually giving the money? How did they feel? Did, was there like a sense of uh, you know like charity going on? Were people tired of giving out money? What what was the feeling of the people that were actually participating in this? 
Well, from the feedback that we got, no one was really doing this in a philanthropic kind of sense. It wasn't a charity kind of thing. People were engaging with this because they saw it as a way to liberate themselves, uh, to have an experience that would be liberating for themselves and for the participants involved, the social experiment, essentially. So the feedback we received were that people were really excited to, to test this out, to see um, how their emotions changed, how people responded. People were a bit deflated at first on the whole when when people were sceptical or, or just wouldn't take the money um, full stop. And so I think that was, that was interesting. And also for some of the people involved, uh, it was pretty much draining their bank balance to zero. And so that was an interesting thing for them to explore. What does it mean to, to take myself down into a space of trust where I have to trust that the world is going to provide uh, for me if I continue trying to do good things beyond free money day? And were people participating outside of who you expected to participate? Were these like people coming down from corporate boardrooms and handing out money? Or were these people yeah, who typically we, didn't have a lot of money? No, we had the whole gamut of people. Um, I think in, in Dubai, we had some senior executives who were handing out money, people in the public sector, uh, people people who were homeless, um, people who were activists, all sorts of people were involved. And I think that's the appeal. That's that's why we tried to set up this event. If you're trying to talk about post-growth futures with people, forget it. You know, On the back of the Occupy movement, there's too much of a divisiveness around these sorts of conversations where it gets into blame game or old school dichotomies of left, right, etc. that really aren't so helpful. But if you start conversations by something as simple as sharing a few dollars with someone, it gives a whole lot of people an opportunity to do that. You can get people who are more philanthropically minded. You can get people who just want to explore it in terms of their own personal development. Really, if you look at all the people throughout history who have been involved in any forms of social change in a, in a particularly strong way, as I mentioned before, humanitarian, Marxist, feminist, uh, environmental, all those sorts of movements, this is open to people uh, very much to be involved in because it taps into aspects of the things that they're interested in anyway in terms of campaigning. We put out the invitation for anyone to be involved and to gain from it whatever it is that they were wanting to gain from it, uh, no matter how uh, how personal the motives. So does this this kind of way of thinking, this is kind of like the Charles Eisenstein gift economy kind of thing. Are you familiar with Charles Eisenstein? Yeah, in fact, Charles is uh, one of our biggest supporters for Free Money Day. Yeah. So how does the how does the Free Money Day kind of fit into the whole gift economy idea? Is is there a way that it kind of can make it can kind of mesh the two ideas together? Yes and no. I mean, it is part of a gift economy. It's it's hoping to inspire that. Certainly, with the local directory that I'm developing here in, in on the Hawkesbury River. There's a big aspect of gift economy. You'll see out of the 200 things that people have listed that they're willing to share, the vast majority of things they're willing to share for free. So Free Money Day is an effort in part to inspire people to think, what can I give without necessarily having to charge for it? But at the same time, it's also asking, well, what might a financial system that actually works look like? Because certainly in terms of the provision of services uh, and the productive distribution, capitalism has worked for a certain number of people. It has aspects of it that I think are important for us to consider in transitioning to new systems. And so Free Money Day is not an attempt to say, hey, you know, uh, a little bit like the Zeitgeist movement does, that we need an an economy without money. No, we we think there will always need to be some form of of exchange mechanism uh, uh, established. But it's about asking some of the deeper questions about what would a financial system at work actually look like? 
you know, maybe introducing people as well to things like the local exchange trading systems where they don't use money so much as they use an alternative form of currency, um, introducing people to those concepts and understanding you can actually detach money from interest-based mechanisms or debt-based mechanisms uh, elsewhere. All right. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time today with us, Donnie. It sounds like if I want to get some money, I'm going to head down to Washington, D.C., <laughs> where you're going to be handing it out, right? That's going to be a long way to come just for a couple of dollars, but you'd be more than welcome. That closes out our conversation with Donnie in talking about post-growth futures and free money day. Seth, are you ready to give out all of your money? Oh, I am going to the bank right now. I have my ATM card in my hand, and I am going to be pulling out all my money in quarters and handing it out to passers-by. So you heard it here first. Seth is going to be down at his local bank on September the 15th, handing out money to random people on the street. I I didn't say where I was going to be, but that's where I'm going to get the money from. Right. Well, why not just give it out right there? Because people are going into the bank and they don't want to be harassed by me. Maybe I'll go to the grocery store and hand it out there. And just hand out free money? Yeah. Or maybe I'll go convert the money into, you know, beer and then hand out free beer. No, that misses the point entirely. Ugh. But I thought that was really cool how Donnie was talking about the whole idea that capitalism has trained us to look at this deficit, to build in this idea of deficit, to always want more and think of all we don't have. And when thinking about the issues of the end of economic growth, it's always, you know, it's really easy to think like, oh, you know, we don't really have what we need headed into this future of scarcity. And I think it's really refreshing take to look at all the people around you and say, what is it that that person can do to help out in our community and to do this whole asset mapping process? If everyone thought that way, I don't think that people would have to necessarily fear the end of globalization and the end of the global economy. Since we're born, we are trained to value money above all else. You go to school so that you can get a job, so that you can get a house, so that you can get a you can get married. And marriage is very much about money as well. You don't want to marry somebody who's who's financially insecure. You want to have all these things so that you can you can be able to live independently from your neighbor. You want to have money so that you can be safe. And that kind of goes against what it really means to be human in a lot of ways because you isolate so many people just in, in just having money and living in a, in a, in a house, a one-family ha- one one house where you don't really interact with anyone if you don't have to. Many people in the United States don't know their neighbors. I mean, myself, I, I very, very rarely interact with my neighbors in my apartment complex. I see them sometimes. I'll wave to them. I'll try to say hello, and they walk right by. 
but it could be because I'm just really smelling. Yeah, I don't think it's because you're smelling, Harry. I think it's just because any kind of interaction with people is really hard in a lot of ways. And so I think that Donnie and the Post Growth Institute has found some really great ways to help break down those barriers. So that's really exciting. Well, thanks again to Donnie for joining us from Australia. And that takes us to our next segment, which received so much overwhelming feedback, we just had to do it again. That's right, Justin. We received so much positive feedback when we brought on John Michael Greer that we had to bring him back on again. There's actually a long and rather complicated history of people growing things in restricted areas in wartime, back to the Middle Ages. Uh, Many people had little gardens inside medieval cities, and when your city was under siege and it was not getting food in from outside, of course, that was a fairly important thing. More recently, we had, uh, of course, during the First World War in the United States and Great Britain, um, the Victory Garden, as it now existed, was invented. In the United States, interestingly, the immediate thought was horror and outrage by the agricultural businesses because they saw their market share being cut into. But in fact, it turned out to be so popular that the government basically had to sort of sigh and slump and let it happen anyway. Um, Britain was considerably more sensible. Britain is a little bitty island with a lot of people on it, and their planners looked immediately at the situation and said, if we don't do this, we're going to starve to death. And so in the First World War, they had kind of a ramshackle um, patch things together as they go arrangement. By the Second World War, um, it was very well organized. It was the Ministry of Food, there was a Ministry of Food during the war, um, was heavily involved in it. There were, there were you know, um, government projects, there were cookbooks circulated for using your own unfamiliar home produce, all that kind of stuff. So it definitely works. It produces huge amounts of food. And it's worth remembering that it can be done even if the government or the big agricultural businesses are scuffing their feet or or actively yelling their heads off against it. It's also probably the single most useful thing that people can do, especially now as food prices are rising. Of course, we don't have any inflation, but prices are still soaring at this point. And as the quality of food and its and its safety, frankly, with the number of recalls of food that's contaminated with various you know, ghastly bacteria, as that goes, growing at least some of your own food in your back is a really good idea. In terms of scaling up a victory garden, um, here again, don't, that's one of the things I don't expect to see governments give you any help for. So the thing to do, if anyone wants to scale up a victory garden, buckle down, now's the time. Start digging up your backyard. Get out there and do it. Get some books. Learn what you can. Obviously, you're not going to be, unless you're, in, you're, you're fairly far south in a fairly warm climate, you're not going to be planning the garden this year, but you can have it ready to go for spring. If you want to scale it up, You're going to have to do it. Now, don't spend your time advocating that other people get out there and do this. Do the thing yourself. That's the one really active advocacy that works. Okay, now on to the questions. Aaron in Massachusetts wanted me to talk about Oswald Spengler. Um, Spengler is a totally fascinating man. He is largely neglected these days because he's been too right. Uh, it's a very bad idea if you're a prophet these days to make predictions that, that, that actually work out. As I think we, we've all seen, you know, um, serious economists and this kind of stuff saying that, say, the housing bo- boom could continue soaring forever. They're still employed. Everybody's still treating them seriously, even though they were complete idiots. Spengler on the other hand, argued that Western civilization had peaked right around the end of the 18th century. Most people nowadays are horrified by that prospect. They say, no, 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 we have all these technological gimmicks that they didn't have in the 18th century, which is true. Um, But fewer people are literate now. 
Um, our culture has gone to heck. Um, the music that we listen to, the art that we, if, we, if anybody bothered to look at art these days, most don't. Um, most of the aspects of Western culture have simply fallen over and died since then. And those things that are still that are still vital, that still have some energy, still have some life, are one and all influenced sometimes or, or simply taken over wholesale from non-Western cultures. Modern popular music in America, for example, is almost entirely of African origin at this point, which is cool. I mean, I, I like rock as much as anybody, but from rock to blues, from blues to, um, to the music of African-American slaves and straight back to Africa, that's where it comes from. It doesn't have anything to do with the huge a very rich heritage of music that evolved in Europe from which we at least our culture at least in theory is is largely descended that tradition is dead I mean the the mummy gets propped up for display at symphony orchestras now and again but who's listening to modern classical music um, and to the extent that it's listenable to which is very questionable this is what Spengler was talking about he was not actually talking about collapse and decline and fall the way the way I've done in my books he's talking about the end of the culture he argued that what would follow the, the the sort of death of Western culture would be a sort of mummy civilization in which which might go on for for hundreds or even a thousand years, where people would be listening to the same things or sort of trudging through the same motions, like like late imperial China, like um, New Kingdom Egypt, where everything creative had been done many many centuries ago when you were just kind of going over it over and over again until finally a crisis shows up and it falls apart as it happens i think he was wrong because i don't think we have the wherewithal to put together that kind of sort of mummy empire i think we're um, you know on our way down at this point but it'll be an interesting question to see what happens i'm listening to actually to quite a range of things i have a fondness for the the sort of classic rock that was um that was much played when i was uh, when i was a younger man than i am today I I am very fond of some of the experimental jazz of people like Thelonious Monk and the Dave Brubeck Quartet. I like um, classical music. I'm particularly fond of Mozart and Wagner. I have a range of musical tastes. Now, Nathan in Ontario asked um, how people who sought to make change through history sustain themselves through the long, grinding tedium of participating in social change, and how faith, religion, or spirituality played a role in those groups. Okay. Now, that actually raises some very, very complicated and troubling questions, because most social change is not caused by people setting out to change it. We have this sense of entitlement in, in modern society that says we ought to be able to make the society we want. And in fact, there have been many people over the last few centuries who've set out to make, uh, make a better society. The problem is that the society they end up with is rarely the one they start with. The philosophers in, in you know, pre-revolutionary France were convinced that we're going to create this marvelous republic of reason. Instead, they got the terror, followed by, the, by Napoleon, followed by the Napoleonic Wars, followed by the restoration of the French monarchy. A lot of people in Russia before 1917 were convinced that when the revolution came, you know, come to the revolution, comrade, we will all eat strawberries and cream. Well, we saw how that worked out. Social change is a complex thing because societies are not our pets. Societies are complex systems, and they respond to pressures for change in intricate and unpredictable ways. It's like trying to push a hurricane. Okay, now, how do people, how do people sustain themselves when they want to make these changes? Well, unfortunately, the most usual ways of doing that um, are utopian fantasies, ethnic hatreds, and conspiracy theories. Usually that's, how, that's what makes for 
a pressure for social change that will continue over a very long period. Either you've got, as the communists did, the fantasy of this, this perfect workers' paradise, which of course never happened and couldn't happen. You have um, ethnic hatreds. There, was, there were a lot of people in the American South up until 1861 who were pushing very hard for an independent South uh, that would, you know, of course, after that crashed and burned at Appomattox. There were a lot of people who continued to, produce, to push for that kind of corrupt social change for many, many years thereafter on that same basis of ethnic hatred. And then finally, conspiracy theories are always a good ploy. That doesn't mean I'm suggesting that these things are good ideas. It's what history shows tends to work. Um, as for faith, religion, and spirituality, okay. This is a complicated issue because when you mix up your religion and politics, people get hurt. It is that simple. Everybody thinks, oh, you know, I can make social change based on my spiritual beliefs, based on my religious beliefs, based on what have you. You can't. Because what will happen is that the politics will seep in and eat out the spirituality from the core outwards, and then you'll be left with politics dressed in a funky religious outfit. That's always what happens. One of the basic principles of all valid spiritual traditions, and I know I'm making a huge generalization here, but yes, I'm going to make that generalization, is that it's not about forcing the world to conform to our desires. That's not what spirituality is. It is not the sort of the secret garbage of, you know, insisting that the universe cough up whatever we want, whether it's a Mercedes bend in the driveway or, you know, some kind of um, wonderful new society where, where I get everything I want um, in terms of political structure, what have you. That's not what spirituality is about. It is not what magic is about, by the way. It is not also a useful approach to deal with any kind of life situation, you have to realize that the world is a complex system. It is much bigger than you are. It was here before you arrived. It will be here when you are gone. The changes you can make in it are, are real, but you're going to make those changes mostly by changing yourself and by figuring out how you can interact with the situation in a mutually constructive way. That's not the same thing as expecting you know, God to bail you out or even expecting that God is, 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 agrees with you or the gods, or goddess, or whatever you want to call it, don't assume that spirituality, whatever spiritual forces you follow, have your back when you get into politics, because they don't. David Corwitz's very interesting FAST study on the possibility of FAST financial collapse is an ex extremely good study, and one of the best things about it is that Corwitz specifically goes through and explains his presuppositions. One of them is that governments will do effectively nothing, that they'll sit on their hands and make plaintive noises while everything falls apart. This cannot be justified by history. This is not what governments do when they're facing an existential crisis. It is that simple. They may overreact, but they will not just sit there and whimper. Okay, if they were to do so, he'd probably be right, but they won't. <laughs> we know what governments do in that kind of situation. Countries have their economies fall apart all the time. Um, you know, Argentina's had it happen quite recently. Russia had it happen not that long ago. We can go through the litany of nations that have had currency collapses, financial freeze. I mean, the United States had one in 1932 and 1933. It's not a hard question. Everybody in, the, in, in governments knows what you do about that. So... That being the case, his study is a very interesting hypothetical study of what would happen if people behaved in ways that they don't. Generally, the whole fast collapse thing is it's very much people want, people have that thing hardwired into their heads that the only alternative to continued progress is this sudden kablam that brings everything crashing to the ground. History doesn't happen that way.
And everyone says, oh, but it's different this time. And I would remind those people who say that, that that's exactly what the folks said who were promoting the housing bubble. The idea that it's different this time is a really, really weak read to read on, especially when what you're, say, what you're trying to argue for by saying it's different this time is, I'm going to load this set of fantasies ultimately based on religious visions, the religious idea of apocalypse. I'm going to pack this onto history, and I'm going to insist that it's going to happen, and you can't prove it's not because it's different this time. Thanks again to John Michael Greer for coming back on the show so soon, and he's going to be here in a few more episodes to answer more of your questions. And thanks to Aaron in Massachusetts and Nathan in Ontario for sending in their questions. If you want to have your questions answered by John Michael Greer, let us because know. Because who doesn't? Everyone loves having John Michael Greer answer their questions. So you can find an op-ed article that you want John Michael Greer to comment on, whatever it may be send it our way through the news form on our website and we will send it over to John Michael Greer. And John Michael Greer told us the kind of music he listens to. Maybe you could get him interested in your music. And speaking of amazing contributions to our show, we have so many fabulous people who've donated to us recently. We were very grateful to receive a donation from Ryan, who's actually there in Raleigh. You are going to send him some stickers and a t-shirt when uh, we've actually run out of mediums. So everyone who's been requesting mediums, we've had to say hold off for our next order because That's we're right. going to get some new ones. We have a very fit audience, and they all want medium shirts, so we're sorry, Ryan. We're going to get one to you real soon. We also heard from Dana in St. Louis, who, who was nice enough to send in a, a donation. Hi there, Seth and Justin. My name's Dana Delabovi, and I'm new to the Extra Environmentalist, and I sent you a little money. And uh, you sent me some great stickers, and I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. I have some ideas where to put them. I'm also going to, if it's okay with you, scan one in and make a magnet out of it, because I like to put magnets on my car rather than stickers. Really great to have you as a listener, Dana. We really appreciate all your hard work in sending us that wonderful donation. And Dana, you are more than welcome to turn that logo into a magnet. But if you don't want to scan it in from the sticker, you can just shoot us an email and we'll be glad to send a logo your way. And that goes for anyone else that has any ideas of how to use our logo. Just shoot us an email and we'll be glad to send you a high resolution copy. And thanks to Victor in Toronto who sent us a donation. And we are so grateful to have you as a listener, and it's so awesome that you are making some big life changes at the moment, and uh, we're here to support you through that however we can with our words and our interviews. So thanks again for listening. Thanks, Victor. We heard from Gary out in Santa Monica who sent us in a donation, and we really appreciate it once again. Gary, your medium shirt is part of the new order that we're going to be getting. We're going to get it to you. I actually sent you out some stickers, so you'll have some stickers to hold on to while we're getting you that medium shirt. That's right. And Gary has been thrown out the Twitter traffic uh, lately about the Extra Environmentalist. So thanks to Gary for letting all of his Twitter followers know all about the Extra Environmentalist. And thanks to everybody else who has been tweeting about the show recently. Our Twitter traffic has just blown up here recently because so many of you have been talking about the show on Twitter, which has been really cool to watch. And Gary also sent us an awesome photo of his bookshelf and some extra environmentalist sticker. So it's really cool to see the bookshelf of our listeners, some of the books of the authors that we've interviewed on our show. 
and more. So we love seeing the stickers, but we also love seeing your bookshelf. So thanks for sending in that photo, Gary. We also heard from uh, David out in British Columbia, which is where we have uh, one of our affiliates out there, Justin. Isn't that right? Actually, it was David who was kind enough to get us on to the radio station in Powell River in British Columbia. And because of that, it allowed us to enter into the Canadian Radio Association to uh, win our award for best syndicated show. So without David, that could not have happened. So That's right. Really Thank grateful. you so much, David. We really appreciate that and excellent work on getting us into Powell River so that we can win that wonderful award. And speaking of radio stations, now we're going to be on CFUV in Victoria, British Columbia. We're picking up yet another British Columbia affiliate, and we will be on the radio every Saturday in Victoria starting in September. That's right. So not only do you get to listen to us on the internets, but you get to hear us on the radio waves. If you're in Victoria or one of the areas that has us on their radio station. We have yet to make the break into the United States radio market. We're now on six affiliates here in Canada. So if you happen to know of a United States radio station that might have a little bit of free air time to play the extra environmentalist, it would be great to asset map some of our listeners to see if they have any radio contacts in the U.S. That's right. Get us over into the United States and we will be eternally grateful. Thanks again to all the people who have donated to the show. And if only we could find something to use their money on. I don't know. Our, our website's starting to look pretty old and stodgy. Yeah, I was feeling the same way. So I started a redesign of the website about a month ago. And it's been working its way through. And Justin, I've got a real big announcement to make. I'm proud to announce the redesign of the 2012 Extra Environmentalist website for everybody. Couldn't have done it without the help of our new web genie, Chris. Amazing work. Chris lives in Florida. He is an amazing, amazing web developer. Pretty much came out of nowhere. I was a little bit stuck on some issues, and he just pulled out on his magic genie hat, or perhaps he rubbed his magic genie lamp, whatever the case may be, and magically, the site just started working again, and it's it's really, really amazing. Uh, you can check it out over at the regular website address, uh, extraenvironmentalist.com, where you can see all of the blog and the videos and podcasts have all been integrated into one conglomeration of amazing. So feel free to check it out. Oh, and check out the amazing donate form that pops up on your screen inside of the light box, which is really pretty cool. Yeah, which we had that up for about 10 minutes and already pulled in an amazing listener who donated and so we're going to be sending Jason in Finley, Ohio, a T-shirt and, and some stickers to thank him for his wonderful donation. The first one we had on our website, we announced the website and just a few minutes after the announcement, he donated. So thanks again, Jason. He is on top of his game. Good job, Jason. Absolutely. So a huge shout out to Chris for a big thank you. And I guess that Baxter, the editing troll, probably helped out a little bit since we've had so much help editing recently from Josh and Kevin, too. Yeah, yeah. Baxter has been really giving, giving it his all lately. When he's not traveling, he's been helping out with the website. Uh, it's been really nice to have him working. Him and Chris have really teamed up well together, and, and they've done some amazing work. And also a great contribution to the site was Ray in Hawaii, who sent in a really cool plug-in that helps us get 
more people onto our Twitter and Facebook pages that sits off to the left-hand side of our website. So thanks so much, Ray, for making that contribution. But not only have we been getting some amazing donations, we've been getting some photos too. Kevin from the Earthway Permaculture Center in Sweden sent in our first ever photo of where those stickers are going. And he sent out, uh, he sent us a photo that we posted on our Facebook wall and he put, uh, he put our extra environmentalist sticker on a truck there at the Earthway Experience Permaculture Center there in Sweden. So really excited to see that sticker uh, as you drive that van around in Sweden. Well, that wraps up everything on our show today. So thanks again for listening. Thanks for helping us to get to episode number 48. We could not have done it without you. So get out there, get some money, and give it away to complete strangers on the street. Economic growth, as normally defined, which is an increase in gross domestic product, increase in the value of goods and services that are consumed by final consumers, and that's the main component, that has only been going on at most for 10 generations. 10 generations isn't actually that long, a couple of hundred years. So as a, if you're thinking about this in kind of terms of, of development of the, the species, as you describe, the, the long-term experience of our species has not been economic growth, quite the contrary. It's a very recent phenomenon. So... We have to understand some history if we're going to have this discussion. But the second thing is, I prefer to approach this more in terms of, of feasibility. If you look at the pattern of economic growth that we've experienced, it's been a pattern where we've had this increasing requirement for materials and energy and generation of wastes. And so our experience of growth is one that it's, it, it's been accompanied by increasing pressure on the biosphere to the point where there's now growing and widespread concern that we've over reach the capacity of the biosphere to support us. So what we're looking at, if we continue down this kind of track, is a very unattractive future. Uh, so to me, the way you have this conversation is to say, well, what do you think is likely if we continue on, along the path that we've been going? And can you come up with something that's better than that? Uh, and I don't find that such a difficult conversation for adults to have. On the next Extra Environmentalist, Dmitry Orlov. Illusionary, I think, is the wrong term because this is the only financial system that this country will ever have. Once this one falls down, that'll be it. And, and so one thing that people don't realize, people talk about reform, right? You know, get rid of the Federal Reserve or get rid of interest-based lending. And let's, let's shift to local currency. And the thing that they realize is that they want access to I don't know, Q-tips, right? 
And, and the thing that they don't realize is that the factory that makes Q-tips uses leased equipment that was purchased based on a loan. And that loan has to be paid. And that loan doesn't have a zero interest rate. So if you want your Q-tips, you have to go with the system that we have now. But if you eradicate the system, if you do anything to it, then the whole thing crumbles because it was created during a time of plenty, which is gone. It'll never come back. What we have now will keep going for a while and then it will no longer exist and that'll be it. Welcome to the Situation Bunker. This is Wolf Blitzkrieg here on CNN, the Collapse News Network, and we're here to cover election night news that is starting to roll in from across the country. It looks like it is a really tight race. Too early to say as our exit poll numbers are starting to come in. We're going to throw it to Tanya Cutter to bring you the latest from the exit polls that are starting to roll in there in Lincoln, Nebraska, in one of the counties that are considered the six counties that may or may not decide this election to start giving you some completely inaccurate and off-the-wall speculation about who can win. Tanya, how are things there in Nebraska? That's right, Wolf. I've been here in Lincoln, Nebraska for about 10 hours now. I'm not sure why I camped out before the election, but I'm here, and it seems that election results are extremely tight. Now, Tanya, when you say tight, that's not to say that a lot of people have been showing up. How many people have you actually seen there at the polling station there in Nebraska today? That's a, that's a great question, Wolf. I actually, since my time here, the 10 hours I've spent here, the people I've seen walking in and out have mainly been poll workers. It seems that not a single voter has shown up at the polls, but it's uh, it's too close to tell right now, Wolf. Now let's take what you've said, Tanya, and go to Northern Virginia, one of the districts that will once again decide this election. This is where the action is at. This is what the Situation Bunker is all about. Now, Stacy, tell us what does it look like in Fairfax County in Virginia? Wolf, I've just arrived here in Fairfax County. I've been spending, I spent the last five hours over in Hanover County, where it seems that nobody has shown up at the polls. We thought that we'd head over to Fairfax to see if there was any difference here. But it seems that nobody has shown up. Wolf, have you ever seen anything like this before? Now, I haven't seen anything like this before, but if you want to see something that no one's ever seen before, check out this amazing hologram that we're going to project here into our studio live 
of one of our lead pundits, John Simpson, and he's right next door in the studio. But instead of asking him to get up from his computer, we're projecting him live with this hologram. John, thanks for beaming in from the next door. What do you make of the turnout in today's election 2012 for the president of the United States of America? Thanks, Wolf. It seems that the election is extremely close. As you can see on this huge projection map that's right behind my 3D image, it is too close to call. It seems that we've had one vote come in in uh, Buffalo, New York, where the race is so close that that single vote has pretty much decided the entire state. Now, I don't think that anybody in the Romney or Obama camps were expecting this kind of heated turnout for the election. To get their reaction, we're going to take it to the lead campaign director for the Obama camp, Velocity Raptor. Can you tell us how things are turning out here today? Is this what you were expecting? Now, I know some of that campaign jargon is difficult for our listening audience to make out. That's why we're going to take it back to the hologram of John Simpson to break down. John, what did we just hear from Raptor at the Obama camp? Yes, Wolf, it seems that Raptor is making a quite a nuanced statement here. They're expecting a huge turnout coming from the small state of uh, Rhode Island. That seems to be the only state that has one potential voter who does not understand what really is happening. Thank you for that breakdown, John. Now let's take it over to the Romney campaign headquarters to hear from their lead campaign director, Ima Satan. Ima, can you tell us what is happening there in the Romney camp? The Romney campaign is extremely excited about the turnout. Every person who has turned out to vote, we now have their souls in a very special place. <laughs> Thank you for that update, Ima. It is very important to hear what's going on at the campaign headquarters at this tumultuous time. Thank you for sharing these few moments with us and our Situation Bunker audience. Now, one place we have been seeing lots of activity tonight is in downtown Manhattan Financial District turning out to vote. Stacy Quo is there reporting live on the scene. Stacy, what have you been seeing there? Yes, Wolf. It seems as if Wall Street, as if reacting to the lack of voters in the United States, has turned up to the polls in record numbers. As you can see behind me, Wolf, the Wall Street bankers are storming the polls, lines out the door, down the street. The last time I saw this kind of turnout was when there was a 20% discount on bluefin leather briefcases. It's crazy down here. Because I'm unable to process the situation and form an opinion on my own, we're going to cut over to the hologram of John Simpson, our political expert that appears to be having problems. John, I hope you can just walk those five steps over from the next door studio and talk to us. John, thank you for joining us in the studio. What does this mean? What's happening right now in the financial district with these exit polls? Well, Wolf, the Wall Street bankers, in response to the lack of voters in the United States, have now turned out at the polls to bail out the government. Yes, Wolf, this is an unprecedented event, and it seems as if Wall Street is now legitimizing the American government. Thank you for your commentary, John. We'll see how the presidential election plays out as we move through the night, even though it has been extremely quiet at polls across the country. Now we're going to break over to a more important story after the break. We're going to cover 
Senate elections, where Apple is on the verge of being elected to Senate for the state of California. Will the iPhone be the new driver's license that you need? Will Steve Jobs be legislated back from the dead? We'll find out when we get back from this break here on The Situation Bunker. Bunker.